Welcome to the first ever episode of the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. My goal for this podcast is basically to talk about books I've read, you know, kind of like a virtual book club. I'll try to stick to books that I enjoyed reading or at least found interesting to read. I feel like there's enough negativity in the world and it's not really my goal to contribute to it. Of course, you know, sometimes I'll probably talk about books that, you know, I didn't think were so good just because sometimes it's fun to make fun of things. But, you know, or sometimes I just want to like vent about books, but that's not really going to be my primary intent. Attention. As far as what kind of books I like to talk about, it's basically the kind of books I like to read. Most of what I read is centered around women or it's written about women. Often it's both. It's books about women by women. But I read a lot of different genres. I do read a lot of romance, which I know is kind of stereotypical. I also read a lot of fantasy, but I also read things like sci-fi. I love mysteries. I've been trying to get into thrillers recently. On this podcast, I usually am going to try to talk about new releases because that's something I've been wanting to get into for a while. And I've finally been able to do that this year thanks to Libby. Libby's an awesome app that you can use to read library books. Highly recommend it. I am not sponsored by Libby, although I would definitely be open to it because I think they're awesome. As a quick heads up, as far as spoilers, my goal for this podcast is to have book club style discussions, so there will be spoilers because I'm going to, you know, assume that you've read the book. If your goal is to avoid spoilers, please don't, you know, Please don't listen to like specific episodes about books you haven't read. I know spoiler culture is very big, very important, and I I do kind of get it. I fall more on the side of things where I'm like, well, if, you know, knowing a spoiler is going to ruin the whole story for me, then it's probably not something I would have wanted to read anyway, but I do respect that people go to a lot of effort to avoid spoilers, so... Okay, finally, I am a writer. That's why I read books, because I love writing books. I think those are, you know, kind of synergistic. They go hand in hand for me. I like to read, therefore I like to write. I like to write, therefore I like to read. So in these episodes, I'll try to have some kind of writing craft discussion. You know, either usually at the end of the episode, towards the end of the episode, sometimes in the middle. I'll always try to have some kind of writing-related perspective. All right, so let's get into it. For this first ever episode, I have a guest with me today, which is very exciting. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. It's very exciting for me to be on your very first show. Hi, everyone. All right. So today, today is the first day of 2023. But instead of looking ahead, first I'm going to look backwards. We're today we're ringing out 2022 with The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. Before we get into that, though, I'd like to do a little year in books review of 2022. Talk about books we've read, books we enjoyed, books we didn't enjoy, that kind of thing. Does that sound good? Sounds great. All right, so I'll go first. As I mentioned earlier, I've been reading a ton of new releases. Again, shout out to Libby. I would say that my go-to genres have not really changed this year. Lots of romance, lots of historical fiction, little bit of fantasy. Not as much fantasy as I would have liked, but a little bit. As I mentioned earlier, I've been getting into thrillers a little bit. 
I've discovered this subgenre called domestic thrillers, which tend to be centered around women, so I've been reading some of those. Speaking of subgenres, lots of different subgenres I haven't read before, especially cozy mysteries. I've heard a lot of good things about cozy mysteries, so I've been trying out a few different cozy mystery authors. It's been a lot of fun. And speaking of mysteries, I just I just love mysteries, you know? That's probably been like my favorite genre to read this year. I think what I love is that at the end of a mystery, there's always gonna be an answer. There's always going to be a solution. You know, you're not really left hanging by a mystery. And I just, that's really resonated with me this year. I think because in the past few years, there have been so many things we don't really have like answers for. So yeah, mysteries are awesome. Everyone loves a good whodunit. But also I just, I read way too much Nancy Drew as a kid, still a big influence on me. And what about you? What genres have you been reading? I know there's a lot of Italian books on your list for 2022. Why don't you tell us about it? Yes! Is Italian fiction officially a genre? It's not officially a genre, but it falls into that same category as, like, for example, like, French books. Like, if you say you're reading a French book, then people are gonna have kind of an idea of, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, a preconception of, like, what kind of book you're reading, even if they don't, like, know really okay. anything about what you're reading. Or, like, you know, like, British fiction. I feel British fiction is definitely a genre. Yeah, and definitely foreign language books, like, as a whole are often, like, grouped together just because they aren't like English. Oh totally. We definitely have a very American slash like English centric view of the world, particularly in books. Even people in other countries often just read like English books. Yeah. I think it's actually kind of interesting like the book that we're going to talk about today is like very Eurocentric, I feel like. That's that's absolutely true. Would you say I guess it kind of gave me British vibes. Yes, I believe the author's British. Yes, but you can definitely tell. Okay, so what kind of Italian books are we talking here? So romance, everyday crime stories, basically anything that's easy to read with a minimal knowledge of Italian. By everyday crime, do you mean true crime? I listen to a lot of true crime, but... I think they're fictional crime stories that I've read. Everyday crimes. Do you mean like petty theft? No, it's more like child abuse. Okay. I know it happens a lot, but I, I would really not like to like describe it as everyday crime. <laughs> Does that make sense? But I mean like takes place with very like normal people. It's not like exotic jewels. Fictional true crime. Fictional true crime. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't believe people are so obsessed with true crime that now we have fictional true crime. Mm. But the true crime popularity, explosion in popularity has really gotten out of hand. And you've been reading a lot of Elena Ferrante. Elena Ferrante, yes. Elena Ferrante has made my year. <laughs> I, I keep meaning to get around to reading her books, and that is one of my reading goals for 2023. I could go on forever about Elena Ferrante. <laughs> What's your favorite Elena Ferrante book? The Neapolitan. This is my favorite book that I've read, like, the entire year. Or, like, set of books, I guess. It's a series of, like, five books? Yes! The My Brilliant Friend series. You need to read this. Are you going to watch the TV show? Yes, I'm planning to. I've heard wonderful things about it. Yeah, same. I feel like Elena Fronte really got put on the map by that TV show because when that came out, everyone was talking about her. Maybe, but I... I... Well, at least in the U.S. Again, yes. we, we have to acknowledge that, you know, even we <laughs> are very American-centric yes. slash, like, English-speaking-centric, mm -hmm. so. Okay. 
Okay, that's awesome. So Italian books. Any any others? Well, there hasn't really been a big change in 2022 for me. Just reading my usual digest of sci-fi and STEM textbooks. That's me. <laughs> okay, so standout books. Let's let's talk standout books. I know you already kind of did with your Elena Ferrante, but I really enjoyed Island Queen by Vanessa Riley. It was a new release that came out this year. I did not read it on Libby actually. I actually checked out a copy at the library. So that was that was fun. So I really loved Island Queen because it's like a blend of historical fiction plus like romance, which are like two of my favorite genres. I read I read a lot of both. So that was great. It's based on a true story, which gets points from me unless it's a movie. If it's a movie, when I see based on a true story, I'm always kind of like, hmm. Because here's the thing, right? Like Hollywood takes like true stories and then they just exaggerate it or just blow it out of proportion. You know what I mean? Like they just can't let a story stand on its own merits. It's got to have more. You know what I mean? Like the entire war's got a hinge on it or something like that, you know what I mean? It's very sensational. Very sensationalized, yeah. And so when I see based on a true story in a movie, I'm always like a little hesitant. But when it comes to books, I okay, I'm biased, right? I like writing. I write books. I'm an author. So maybe I'm putting a little too much faith in authors, but I feel authors are more able to do smaller scale stories. Does that make sense? Yes. I feel like they do more justice to true stories than like movies or TV shows do. So, okay. So anyway, based on a true story, so points from me like right away, historical fiction, romance based on a true story, I was I was hooked immediately. And this book definitely did not did not let me down. And when I was reading this book, I could tell even before I read like the author's like little biography at the end, even before I read that, I could tell this author had like a background in writing romance because the romance arcs, like there's several romances in the book and all of them were very well done. And that's just so rare. You know what I mean? Especially, I'd say especially, well, okay, the worst offender for romance arcs of all time are just those like action adventure movies. I've never seen an action adventure movie, I don't think. Or maybe, I've seen a handful, but they're very rare, where the romance arc is actually well done and doesn't feel like it was just shoehorned in. Especially, you know like those very old western movies where there's only a romance arc because they want a woman in the movie? Like I just, I hated those so much. It's, it's insulting both to romance as a genre and to women in general, because inevitably the woman just kind of turns into a side character or like the damsel in distress. And I just, I kind of hate both of those. So anyways, so yeah, Island Queen, the romance arcs were very well done. I also found the underlying like true story very compelling. It's about this woman who was a woman of color and she managed to rise above like all kinds of barriers of like race and class in the Caribbean islands in the 1700s. And she became like a successful business owner. And I just think that's, that's such an amazing story, you know, like as a true story, th that kind of thing just didn't happen very often back then. So she was, she was an incredible woman. And this was an incredible book to be able to read. I will say though, if you are thinking about reading this book, it is a very sad book. Obviously, this kind of story, it just it just has to be sad, you know? Like a woman, 
a woman like that was going to go through terrible things in that time period. So I would say there were a lot of things I was reading the book and I was like, gosh, I wish I had like a content warning for, you know, the thing that's currently happening in the book. Not that it would have stopped me from reading it, but I feel like it would have mentally prepared me for what was going to happen if I had known that that was in the book. I kind of wanted to ask you how you felt about content warnings for books because here's the thing, right? They're very contentious. I feel this is a topic that comes up a lot online and most people are like, I don't want content warnings because they contain spoilers. But for me personally, I kind of want content warnings just because I want to know what I have to brace myself for. Like I don't, again, I'm not like the best person when it comes to like spoilers and things because I I truly, like, just knowing that something's gonna happen in a story doesn't really spoil it for me because I want the story to stand on the strength of its own merits rather than just, like, interesting plot twists or whatever. But what do you, what do you think about content warnings for books? I'm not sure. There are definitely books I didn't mind reading that I wouldn't have read if I knew the dark topics in them. I think it would be nice to have warnings, but maybe it's better to not make them, like, too prominent just so the people that want to avoid them can't avoid them. And it's also very hard to do content warnings because there are topics that some people are very traumatic about, whereas other people are less traumatic about. And there are, like, topics that, like, very few people are traumatic about, but, like, or, like, just nobody's aware that people are traumatic about. That's fair. I, I have seen... Okay, so, for example, something that I kind of considered doing for my books was I kind of considered having like a page like at the towards the end of the book where I put the content warnings but here's my issue right so far I only have ebooks and for example if you like download the preview what's it called the sample the sample for my ebook and you want to see the content warnings like you can't because if I put them at the end of the book then they're just at the end of the book. You can't access the end of the book. You know what I'm trying to say? And if I feel, I feel like if I put the content warnings at the front of the book, the front of the sample, people are going to be like, spoilers, spoilers. And I just... <laughs> so I have seen authors who say, if you want content warnings, email me. And okay, let's be honest. I do check my email every day, but I don't want to have to answer that email every time it comes in. <laughs> like, let's just be honest here, right? Maybe... Is there, like, a way to put a comment and make it pop open, like, when you click it? Or put it on your website? Or, like, like, content warnings for all of my books. That's a good idea, actually. If I do do content warnings, that is how I will do them. I will have, like, a special thing on my website. Okay, that's a good idea. Thank you. Yes, and just, like, put it at the front of your book. Like, for content warnings, please go to my website. Okay, so, all right, thank you. That was That was a very productive discussion. Okay. Island Queen by Vanessa O'Reilly, my standout book for 2022. Do you do you have any standout books you wanted um, to? As, as I said, Elena Ferrante, my Brilliant Friend series. It's just the most utterly genuine description. Like I felt like it was totally real when I was reading it. Quick mm-hmm. curiosity. Okay, so when you say you felt like it was real, okay, this is something that I'm curious about as a writer. Now, as a writer, my initial assumption is going to be that the sense of pl- place and time are well established. That's what you mean. Yes, but even beyond that, it just feels genuine because for one thing, there isn't like a single romanticized, sensationalized character in the whole series. Like all the characters are grounded. They're grounded and they're very, none of them are perfect, if you know what I mean. 
I hate to say this, but books often have like perfect characters. Like even if they're portrayed with flaws, you still really like them for whatever reason. This book, these books don't do that. They're okay. just real and you accept them as they are. When you say perfect, are you talking about, for example, like, often minor characters in books? For example, like, young children. Young children are often portrayed as perfect. You know what I mean? They're portrayed as very sweet or very adorable. Grandmothers or, like, grandparents are oft often fall into that category for me. They're portrayed as perfectly kind or sweet. I feel like it's very realistic in the sense that you can be total friends with somebody. I feel like protagonists have flaws, but often friend characters have less flaws. They're just very good. Romance is very guilty of this. Friend characters only really exist to be supportive. Like, they're not really people. They're often quirky to make you try to believe they're people, but really they're just there to support the main character like that. I think so. And, uh, like, my brilliant friend, the brilliant friend is absolutely brilliant and absolutely real. That makes sense. I feel like those media where all the characters are real, believable people, even if they're not nice people, are. I feel like that kind of media is becoming more common. For mm -hmm. example, like, there's an HBO show I watch called Succession, where everybody is just a terror person but you want to root for them sometimes just because they're people you know yes I really understand that and this book I think you would like it for this reason but the women for instance in it struggle a lot against the world they're in and they become very successful within the book you say that like I want to watch women struggle <laughs> no. <laughs> no but I'm saying it's very no powerful. no I I no I, t I I totally get what you mean but the way you worded it was like I want to watch women struggle struggle and I I really don't mm -hmm. I but I no I get what you mean I I do like it when people acknowledge what women yes. go through but it's okay content warning <laughs> there are scenes where some of the men are extremely disrespectful there are older men who act yeah. badly and oh uh, man older men <laughs> so often the villains in women's lives yes Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yes. Alright, so standout books. So those are those are our two standout books for 2022. Alright, let's talk about books that didn't really live up to expectations. Now I said I wanted to stay positive, however, sometimes sometimes we can sometimes we can get critical, right? Mm -hmm. Critical is not the same thing as negative or mean. So let's let's get a little critical here. Okay, books that just, you know, didn't really quite hit home because I don't wanna I don't wanna sit here and enthuse over everything we read. That just makes it sound like I'm being paid to advertise and I'm not. I wish I were, but I'm not. So alright. My book that did not Okay, this is my problem. I saw this book in a bookstore. I saw the cover. I was immediately intrigued. I picked it up. I read the description and I was like, I really want to read this book. So I got home and I actually forgot about it for a bit. And then it popped up on Libby. So I was like, I want to read this book. So I checked, I checked it out at Libby and it did not live up to my own hype. Like I hyped it up so much in my head. I was like, I'm going to love this book. I'm going to, I'm going to really enjoy this book. And I, I did not unfortunately. The book is called, okay, I should have done a little bit of a pronunciation check before I started this episode, but I did not. So the book is called The Many Daughters of Afong Moy. Does that sound good enough? Just I have no pronunciation idea. <laughs> wise. Okay, hopefully I did not butcher it too much. Okay, 
It's by Jamie Ford. So I finished it a few days ago, so I haven't really had enough time to really like process it thoroughly yet, but I've been, I've been kind of thinking it over. I've been trying to put my finger exactly on what it was that kind of bothered me or just didn't. Sometimes books, especially books that you want to like, just don't quite get there. And I'm, Okay, first of all, I want to say this is not a bad book by any means. I, I did enjoy reading it. If you, like me, were hyped to read it or are hyped to read it, please read it. Like, I'm not trying to discourage anyone from reading this book. It's a very good book. Again, it's one of those books that's, like, based on a true story that I did not know about. It's based on the true story of the first Chinese woman to ever come to the U.S., so really interesting premise, right? You see why I really wanted to read this book. It's so, it's so compelling as a premise. And it's about like, you know, generations of Chinese American women who are like the descendants of this woman. And that's just, you know, it's the kind of book I really enjoy reading, you know, historical fiction based on a true story. So anyways, yes. So that was what I was excited about. Now, the first, okay, so... I think there's two things that are kind of bothering me about this book. So the first, first thing is, the first thing is a writing craft issue that I have with this book, the way that it's written. There are just a lot of characters in this book. There are a lot of characters in this book. There are six point of view characters. Each point of view character has her own world. So extra care. So for every point of view character, there are lots of extra characters you also have to remember because that's how it works, right? Uh -huh. Like point of view characters don't exist in isolation. So when I say six point of view characters, please keep in mind, I mean six point of view characters plus all of the little <laughs> side characters <laughs> that surround the point of view character. Each character has her own character arc, her own narrative, her own story. The book is just constantly switching back and forth between characters. Now, I know I, I, I say this and it's clear that I've never read Game of Thrones. I have not read Game of Thrones. I watched, I watched the first seven seasons and then I didn't watch the eighth season because everyone hated it. Seeing the memes online, I'm glad I didn't watch the eighth season. Okay, I've never read Game of Thrones because I had a lot of trouble keeping up with all of these characters. It didn't, it really didn't help that we are constantly switching back and forth between like the 1800s and like the early 1900s and then the middle 1900s and then like in the future like the near future and i just there was just way too much for me to keep up with so it just i think that what happened for me is it's not just that it was a lot for me to remember because you know my my memory is not perfect but i feel like i have a good memory right yes Okay, so my memory is okay. Like, it wasn't that I couldn't remember everything that was going on. The problem for me was that there was just so much switching back and forth. Only two or three of the characters ended up getting, like, a fully fleshed out story, right? Which is understandable. You have, you know, this is this is not, like, an extraordinarily long book. It's a, it's a pretty normal-sized book. I, I read it as an ebook, so I don't really know, but I would say it's probably 200, 300 pages. It's a normal-sized book. For six characters, you are never going to get a fully fleshed out story story for each of them. So only two or three characters get their fully fleshed out story, which is fine, but here's the thing, right? I, when I read, I connect with characters. That's, that's just me. That's how I read. That's why I like reading. I love characters and character development. So yeah, love characters. Characters are how I bond to books. If 
There are only two or three fully fleshed out characters in a book. It's hard for me to connect with it. It just, it just is. And I think that will bother me even more than that though, is this is supposed to be a character driven book, right? Like this is not a book really about the plot per se. Like it is supposed to be about the characters and that's why it bothered me so much. So that was, that was one issue. The second issue I had with this book was the way it talked about trauma. So don't worry, I'm not, I'm not gonna get into spoilers here. So the basic premise of the book is that you can genetically remember your trauma. Like when you experience trauma, it gets written into your genes, right? And what happens to you because of that? So basically the idea is if something traumatic happens to you and you have a kid, right, trauma gets passed down to your kid. Oh, so they like experience trauma about the same thing that you feel trauma about? Basically they the trauma remains in your in your kid, in your kids' kids, in all your descendants as like a memory, like a hidden memory that you can't get to. So you do like feel trauma about something, like for instance you're oh, like you're talking about like triggers, like things yes. that would be triggering for you? Yes. Right. Yes, yes. No, that that is. Okay. The reason I remember that is because the book like, okay, it talks the book the book loves this. Okay. The reason I say loves this is because the in the preface, in the actual like body of the book and in the end note, it's it's repeated three times. The story of this lab experiment where they subjected mice to pain and there was some kind of like forgive me. Okay, I'm forgetting already. But I think there was some kind of like smell associated with the pain and then in these like mice's descendants all down the line, they would react negatively to the smell. Right. So yes, yes. Right. So basically you have hidden triggers that you don't even know about. Oh, all right. Okay. So, so my issue is the way that this book has kind of a fatalistic view towards trauma and the inheritance of trauma. So I think, okay, my issue is this. I feel like this book is trying to say, if there is trauma in your DNA, then you're going to end up being depressed because of that trauma and you won't even know it. Does that, does yes, that make sense? That, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I don't know about you, but I feel like I have enough traumatic memories of my own without having to also be burdened by the traumatic memories of my ancestors. But like, so like, I'm not really sure about it being genetically passed down, but the trauma, it kind of is already passed down. It's a nature versus nurture problem. And so in your nurturing, you do inherent trauma, I think, from your ancestors. It's not like you don't have it to the same degree that your ancestors have it. Here's why I agree with you, right? Now, I do think, for example, if you experience trauma and then you give birth to a kid and you're raising your kid, then absolutely, like, your trauma is going to inform how you raise your kid, yes. right? For instance, if you're afraid of the dark, then, like, I bet that your kid will end up being afraid of the dark. Oh, absolutely. I think that my issue is not that. Like, I, so, and then, of course, that will have, like, repercussions down the line as well. Yes. That's not really my issue with the book. So, my issue, or really, like, this view, the viewpoint that the book is expressing, which is that... You just can't get away from it no matter how you raise your kid. Exactly. Or, like, how the kid's raised or anything. Or, I, okay, here's my viewpoint, right? Like, I feel your parents do raise you, but I think there's a part of you that you raise yourself. 
That makes sense. For instance, even if your parents are afraid of the dark, there are ways you can raise yourself to not be afraid of the dark. Exactly. For example, like, you're not going to end up with the same viewpoints as your parents, necessarily. And that's because your parents raise you, but you also raise yourself, or, like, your mm-hmm. your community raises mm-hmm. you, or, you know what I mean? Yes. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of influences mm-hmm. that go towards you, and a lot of those other influences, other than your parents, you can kind of pick and choose for yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, and even in, like, whether or not you pay attention to your parents is a personal choice. Exactly, right? Yeah, I mean, the parents are always going on about, like, kids they can't control or kids they can't influence, which I think, by the way, is such a toxic mindset. I can't control my kid. Like, you're not supposed to be controlling them. You're supposed to be raising them. I feel like those are two separate things that a lot of people just conflate. Yes. So this book takes it even further. Yes. It's totally out of control. (laughs) Exactly. For example, there's a character, there's a character in the near future, let's say. I'm trying not to spoil too much here. This is hard. Okay. There's a character in the near future here who, as far as I know, doesn't really have that trauma of like a past per se but she's like weighed down with all these mental health issues because basically it's like cumulative trauma from the past is weighing her down and when I read that (laughs) I was just kind of it was it was a very downer moment for me Yes. To realize, like, we what should was have going all on. like the only happy people are Adam and Eve because they had no inherited trauma. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they have no inherited trauma, right? Yeah, and everyone down from there, like, it gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> exactly, it's compound trauma. It's not compound interest. It's compound trauma. <laughs> well, at least it's like linear growth, not exponential growth. <laughs> <laughs> I feel trauma is kind of exponential, though. In the impact it has on you. Like, if you have one traumatic memory, like, that's uh, bad enough. Say you have two traumatic <laughs> memories, right? Yes. Like, that's that's not that's not a linear impact on you. That's more of an exponential impact okay. on you as a person. But, like, at a certain point, maybe you, like, start, like, ignoring it. So, like, maybe it's, like, one of those carrying capacity curves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, so the near... Okay. So, in the near future of this book, like, there's a... I'm not gonna say a cure. In the near future future of this book there exists a cure now not really a cure but let's call it a cure for dealing with the inherited trauma right and here's the thing the book treats that as like some kind of triumphant conclusion or closure for dealing with this issue of inherited trauma that it raises but here's the thing right i think that you're supposed to feel hopeful or like happy but i felt the exact opposite when i finished this book because if inherited trauma is real right if if all the things in this book which i mean even the book probably knows i mean even the author i i know the author knows this is speculative and it's being exaggerated for the sake of a story but even if some part of this you know idea that the book is pushing is true then it does not then it is not it is not comforting to me in any way that the near in the near future predicted by this book there is a cure because I have no hope whatsoever that there is going to be such a cure in the near future of our timeline that we <laughs> exist in. <laughs> like, I have no faith whatsoever that there are currently researchers 
or you know what I mean, or companies like working on a cure for this for the problem raised by this book. And I'm just left wondering, so I mean, I have mental health issues of my own. Are those all my own issues that I already know about? Or am I also lugging around issues I don't even know exist? Because like, let's be real, like, uh, like my ancestors, like, probably didn't live the happiest lives ever, you know? Like, especially the women, right? Like, that's just, you know, like, the women were probably pretty miserable, like, let's be honest. (laughs) And I'm just lugging around all these extra memories and traumas I can't even access or probably will never be able to access in my lifetime. And even if I somehow work through all of my own issues, I have to also work through all of my ancestors' issues to ever truly be free? So when, maybe if you work through one, it's written into your genes and so it starts going way over the generations. Older trauma. <laughs> because, <laughs> like, I, I just don't believe in generational de- decline, you know. Okay, millennials were terrible, then Gen Z's even worse. I don't believe that. Yeah, stuff. I don't believe that either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, but I was just, I just, I just ended this, like, I, I, I finished the book, and I just sat there for a moment, feeling so down, and so depressed, and that was just, that wasn't how I expected to feel when I got through the end of this book. But, um, yeah, oh, okay, so, okay, having said all of that, I do, I, I need to say, I do still recommend the book, please read the book, but, like, if, okay, if you struggle with trauma or mental health in any way, like, let me know if you, if you ended up feeling the same way after reading this book, because I'm just curious. Okay, here's the thing, right? I feel like if I were not a person who struggled with these issues and I just read the book, I would be like, wow, what an amazing book. Just, I feel that's how I would feel. And that's how I wanted to feel. I I don't think I would be thinking all of this, you know, because it's just, but that's art, right? Like books, books are art. And how you react to art is very dependent on who you are. And that's just, you know, that's just the thing. So it's definitely, it's definitely a me thing a me thing not not really a thing about the book so what about you any books you found like disappointing or just just didn't live up to like your own hype maybe alice in wonderland wait you didn't read that for the first time this year though no i listened to it in italian oh and I was like this is not what i remembered <laughs> What, what, was, was it like the vibe was different? Was it the translation? No, I think it was just, I read it when I was like in lower school and I just Oh, like, you didn't remember the actual story. I, I, I just didn't remember it very well. Alice in Wonderland is an interesting book. It's kind of a weird story. I, in that way, I feel like it is definitely written for children in that I feel like children are much more open to weirdness. Like, mm-hmm. for example, let's say you read a rolled doll, you know that author? from our childhood. Yes, yes. I feel like if you read one of his books for the first time as an adult, you'd be I like... I did. I did. Wait, which uh, one? I read... Uh, I hadn't... I didn't read, actually, a lot of Rodal as a kid, but when I got to sophomore year of high school, maybe junior year, I went to the library and I read Charlie... <laughs> Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Rodal's books are definitely written for children in the same way that Alice in Wonderland's written for children because they're weird books. Yes. Yes. But I read weird books all the time. I actually loved Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but I read Murakami. Oh, yeah. It's very <laughs> weird. <laughs> but weird in a good way, you mean. Yes. Weird yeah, weird good. in a way you like. But, for example, I feel it's even a developmental thing. For example, I read the book Matilda by yes, Roald Dahl yes. for the first time in third grade, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And when I, okay, my when I was in third grade and I read Matilda, I did not think it was weird at all. I, I felt like I really 
related in a lot of ways Me to Matilda. Me too. Like, I read it when in first grade. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, you read it in first grade? Mm-hmm. I feel it's a little advanced for first grade. No, it was perfect. <laughs> okay. But and then, I read it again in high school when I read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I was like, what is this weird story? <laughs> yes. But here's the thing, right? So I read the book in third grade. We watched the movie in fifth grade. The f- movie, it obviously it's a little different, but I feel it's fairly faithful to mm-hmm. the book. And I was... I was I was struck. I was like, "What was this really the same story?" I remember. I went back and reread the book, and I was like, "Yes, the same story, but I reacted differently because I was just in a different developmental phase, you know, from when I was like eight or nine to like ten to eleven." But Alice in Wonderland's the same way. I feel like in that way, I think when uh, personally for me, when I return to the Alice books now. Alice in Wonderland uh, through the looking glass I only ever really read through the looking glass because it's weird but it's a little less weird in my opinion than Alice in Wonderland do you think so here's why here's why like Alice in Wonderland is a series of events that don't really have any bearing on each other it's it's really it really is a dream it's a dream sequence through the looking glass has a motif it's the chessboard yes and it has a goal Right. It's much more of a straightforward hero's journey story. Mm -hmm. So it's easier for your brain Mm -hmm. as an adult. Because Mm -hmm. as an adult, you're looking for conformity. You're looking for your hero's journey. You're looking for story structures, narrative structures that you're familiar with. Because that's what you get conditioned to read when you're an adult. Whereas Alice in Wonderland is truly, you know, that dream sequence. But I actually love books that you don't know where they're going. So, like... That's why you love Murakami. Yeah, I love Murakami for that reason. I also feel like Elena Ferrante. I never know what's going to happen, but I don't mind. I just keep reading. (laughs) Yeah. So, let's go ahead and wrap up our year in books review for 2022. Unless there's anything else you wanted to, like, discuss, circle back to. Okay, I'm ready to talk about Addie. All right, let's get into Addie LaRue, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. This is a new release, released in 2022. It's a pretty divisive book. I was a little surprised by that. If you love it, you really love it. If you don't like it, you really don't like it. I've seen people who say that this book changed their life or gave them an existential crisis. Um, Same thing. Yes. (laughs) I've seen people who said it was, like, boring, cliche, just another young adult book. You know, whatever. I loved this book. I checked it out on Libby, obviously. It's it's fantasy. It's romance. It's coming of age. It's coming of age, yeah. It's right. character-driven. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a character-driven book. It's it's all the things that I just I just love in a book. I mean, I was... Like, from the first time I read the premise, I was like, okay, I'm gonna love this book. Yeah, I feel... Um, I don't want to think of it as a coming-of-age story because it's just too sad as a coming-of-age story. A lot of coming-of-age stories are sad, though. But Addie started... The story starts... The main storyline starts when Addie's in, in her 20s. It's harder to call it a coming-of-age story. It's more like a... Like, yeah, but... I feel like Addie doesn't really develop the first, like, 20-something years of her life. Like, she's in this little village. She doesn't go anywhere. She doesn't really do anything. All right. That's true. So, you're saying that after the curse happens to Addie, that's when her life begins. Yes. Which is kind of (laughs) the point. But she comes of age then. All right. Yeah. Because she does a lot of... I feel like that's when she grows up, you know? That makes sense. Okay, you want to read sad coming-of-age books? Try Bridge to Terabithia. You never read that. 
Be glad you didn't. I read that in third grade, and it was so sad. All right. I feel like coming-of-age stories have honestly gotten more hopeful. Like, the older ones are super sad. But it's like fairy tales, you know? Like, fairy tales started out, like, super dark and grim, and now fairy tale is, like, used to mean, like, lighthearted, you know, basically. <laughs> the premise of this book, I just thought was like so good it's like this girl who just never belongs anywhere you know she can never really connect with anybody and that just that just like really hit home for me because that's that's something that I struggle with a lot like connecting to people feeling like I belong somewhere and she just she gave up everything so she could be free you know and I think that's the kind of thing I would do like I would give up pretty much anything to be free to be my own person just kind of ironic how being free means you have no identity because you think freedom is an identity. I mean, free? What does free mean, you know? Okay, I don't mean to drag classical music into this podcast. I really don't. However, however, the composer, the German composer Johannes Brahms was a bachelor all his life. They say it's because he was in love with Clara Schumann, Robert Schumann's wife. But anyways, doesn't matter. He was a bachelor. Maybe he was gay. You never yes. know. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> he That's was... just a cover-up story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he was a... Solved the mysteries of history. Yes. Maybe he had a roommate. You yeah. never know. Okay. Anyways. So, Johannes Brahms. Okay, so he had... But he had, like, this motto, right? And for the first, like, for the first something you know, years of his life, it was free and alone. Then, later on in his life, it became free but alone, right? And I don't know, that really struck me as kind of poignant, because I feel like, because I feel like both, both mottos are true. They are true. Yeah. If you're alone, you're free, right? Like, if you live by yourself, and you, for example, like, say you live by yourself, you have no family, no friends, you have nothing to tie you down, no commitments, no obligations. Well, you can... like you might have a job. Yes, or, like, other you might than have, that, like you know, like, pets. Okay, like... but in general, in general, all right, in your free time, whatever. Right. Yes, in your private life. Yes, in your private life, you have you have you have nothing to yes. tie you down. Well, is that what freedom means? Maybe, but and then later in life, his motto was free but alone because he felt lonely, and that's that's valid too. Like being free, you you yeah. can feel you can be lonely. You know, uh, like, <laughs> like you you might you're probably gonna end up being lonely if, if you're truly free. Then it means being alone. Yes. So yeah, that was that was something I thought of mm-hmm. with the premise of this book. Anyways, so I love this book, Addie Larue, so much. I bought a copy for you for Christmas, and I want to know if you loved it or you hated it. And I don't want you to tell me I wasted thirty dollars. No, I'm fi- I'm kidding. Okay, give me your honest opinion. Okay, I loved it too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Okay, so I wanted, okay, so this is kind of a surprise, so we're gonna read some Goodreads reviews, because, okay, I'll be honest, I am one of those people, whenever, whenever I'm, like, checking out a book on Libby, I'll just check it out, like, no problem. Mm -hmm. If I'm gonna buy it, though, even if it's, like, a used book that's, like, super cheap, I have to look at the Goodreads reviews before (laughs) I do it, (laughs) and I feel like that's kind of a crutch, in a way, because I'm, like, relying on other people. But I do it too. I will not watch a movie that has a bad Rotten Tomato score. If it's 20%, I'm not watching it. <laughs> okay, at some point, I want to watch all the movies that have a 0% Rotten Tomato score. I bet they're actually great. <laughs> <laughs> it must be like hilarious to watch right? right i don't know honestly 
Okay, so bad they're good movies. Yes. yes. Have you? I, I've only ever been able to, like, laugh at bad movies, like, a few times, though. You know? I feel like you need to watch it with someone for it to truly be hilarious. Yes. 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 We should... We have another podcast, uh, yeah. the 2 a.m. Movie Review Club. We should do a series where we watch all the 0% Rotten yes. Tomatoes movies. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let you guys know how that goes, but we yes. should... We'll, we'll do that at some point. Yes. That'll be in our 2023... Lineup. Like, lineup. Yeah. Okay, so Goodreads. Okay, so are you are you ready for this? I am ready for this. Okay, okay. So do you want to start with the top rated positive review or negative review? Positive. Okay. I'm feeling positive. No, let's go with negative action. Okay, so we can end on a high note? Yeah, high note. Okay, do you want the top three star review or the top two star review? How negative do we want to go? Two. Two. Oh my gosh. Okay. No! Okay, this is two stars, but the person starts out by clarifying they mean 1.5 stars. This is going to be very negative. Okay. Okay. Mild spoilers ahead. We we don't mind. We don't mind the spoilers. Yes, we read the book, <laughs> and we're assuming you've read the book as well. Yes. If you're listening to this, you've read the book. You've agreed to spoilers. Okay. Don't don't sue us. <laughs> <laughs> or like the internet version of suing. What would that be? Like complaining. Yes. <laughs> Hashtag two a.m. Book review club socks. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's let's read this. The invisible life of Addie LaRue is a manifesto of the dangers of pouring too much of yourself in your artistic creations. What? Was that what you got from this book? No. I got... Does Addie do... Addie can't even make artistic creations. (laughs) (laughs) How much... And Henry doesn't make any artistic creations. He's a photographer part-time. At at the end of the book, it's implied that he becomes, like, a famous photographer. Alright, but that's not the point of his life. Yeah, that's... Well, that's not the point of the part of his life where he intersects Mm -hmm. with Addie. Yeah. Uh, Alright, alright. Right Right away, we disagree with the meaning of the book. Yes. Yes. Alright. Sorry, reviewer. If you're listening to this, which is unlikely, but if the reviewer, reviewer who wrote this review is listening to this, we disagree with the fundamental thesis of your review because we just got different things from the book so okay does that mean that art must be impersonal no that doesn't mean that let's agree that it's dangerous to put too much of yourself into your art okay let's let's agree with the premise but here's the thing right I think that some people are okay. Oh, I know what this person's talking about, actually. They're talking about Luke, like, the darkness. And oh. they're talking about the deals he makes with, like, for example, like, he makes a deal with, like, Beethoven. Oh, I remember what you're... Yeah, trading, trading, trading your soul away so that you can create beautiful art. Alright, but here's the thing, right? Okay, I think that's a sacrifice some people are willing to make. Okay, I personally would not that go, go that far for art because I, I do value, like, myself and my sanity in my own life. However, 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 if Luke, darkness, whatever, devil, what do you, whatever you want to call him, if he came to me and he made a deal like, okay, give me your soul and you could write the perfect book, like the book that you really want to write that's in your soul. Because I feel like every writer has that book, right? right? I don't know that I would say no, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'd probably say no, but 
but if if I said yes, I would I would uh, I would understand why I made that decision because that's just that's just you know it's valid it's valid it's how you want to live your life you get one life okay you get one life and you get to live it however you choose if it's in the service to art then it's in the service to art like earlier we were talking about like Brahms and like we made some jokes about the fact he remained a bachelor but maybe it was just because he wanted to spend his life writing music he wanted nothing outside of life and that's fine mm-hmm. okay let's let's go with the review does that mean art must be impersonal i'm too much of a relativist to make a definite let alone definitive statement about that but let's say i would certainly like for authors of fiction to take a leaf out of t.s Eliot's book and try and flee their personalities when they're at work what okay i think what this person is trying to say is that sometimes authors sometimes authors can put too much of their personalities into their work which by which I mean, some authors do end up kind of writing the same books or the same characters, kind of reskin. Oh, I, I am in so much fear of that. Every time I write a new book with a new protagonist, new characters, I'm like, particularly in romance, right? I'm like, are these are these two romantic leads too similar to the ones I've written before? <laughs> you know? Yes. So I do, I do kind of get it, but at the same time, at the same time, your personality is what makes your writing unique. Don't try, I don't think you should flee your personality. Just like, put out in doses. What I do is I just, I put a, I put different parts of my personality or myself into my books. I don't think I could ever like do like an autobiography or like an autobiographical work just because like I'm so used to compartmentalizing like pieces of myself to use in different works. But I, I am still my entire self self when I write. I just use different pieces of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about being a writer. Your professional life and your personal thoughts can come out. Where else are you supposed to get personal thoughts? Where else do you find depth to your characters? Even if it's just by observing other people, your personality affects how you see other people. All art is Mm self-expression at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. There's various degrees of self-expression, obviously. But it is is self-expression. Okay, let's see what else this person (laughs) has to say that we can disagree with. (laughs) Okay. Um, we're Addie LaRue fans. Yes. <laughs> Addie LaRue. We're the Addie LaRue fan club for this episode. Anyway. Yes. Okay. The underlying problem of Addie LaRue, as I see it, is that it has no discipline, no sound strategy beyond the author's, well, let's see what else would meet my very personal taste now. A looseness which becomes manifest in the book's weak characterization and character development, and most of all, in its even weaker writing style. Now I'm offended, because I actually love the writing style in this book. (laughs) Did you? I did. I thought it was very lyrical. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very pretty book. Exactly. Okay, it starts with the cover. I love the, the original cover of Addie LaRue. is a beautiful cover. Mm-hmm. And it, it's reflected in even like the font. I love the font mm-hmm. and the typesetting, the way that it's formatted. I just, it, it, and, it's, and it's reflected in the writing style too. Yes. It all matches. It does. I love books that do that. Like every part of the book just matches. Mm-hmm. So... I don't really know what this person on is on about, like, weak writing style. That's not, that's not a way I would use. It really fits the story in the book. Don't really get where that person is getting a weak writing style from. <laughs> but I disagree. Okay. Weak characterization and character development. I 
disagree with that too. I thought that even like the minor characters are pretty well developed. Like I remember all of the characters pretty much in this mm-hmm. book and that's very unusual for yes. me. In a book of this scope, usually I would forget or at least a few of the characters would be forgettable. Mm-hmm. But like, considering like the momentary encounters that Addie has, the characters are extremely memorable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They're all, and they're all believable too. Mm -hmm. They're not, it's not relying on cheap tricks of like quirkiness or anything. No, it doesn't rely on stereotypes or anything. Yeah. I I thought the character development was me. Yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) this is fun. (laughs) Okay. We're not tearing apart the book. We're tearing apart the review. (laughs) But that's fine. (laughs) Because just as books are put out for public consumption, so are reviews. It's within our rights to tear apart reviews we don't like. Okay. Also, weak character development. Like, the entire book is about Addie's character development. That's why I called it a coming-of-age story. I thought the character development was beautiful. <laughs> I, I did. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Now, let's let's see what else this person has to say. Okay. And I know. I know. I never thought I'd see the day when I'd have to say these things of a Schwab book, but they are sadly true. Okay, I've never read a V.E. Schwab book before this, but I have heard a lot of good things about her. And honestly, for me, like, this book was what proved that hype, right? I'm like, yes, I want to read more of her books now. That was my, like, reaction when I finished the book. Yeah, I get why people like this author. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I'm like... So if this person doesn't like this book but likes her other books, does that mean I'm not going to like her other books? Like, the principle of, like, inverse. Probably not. Like, I'm probably going to enjoy all of her books. But it makes you kind of wonder. The writing style, usually Schwab's forte, at least according to what I remember from her previous books, was particularly appalling in this one. I swear it felt like she couldn't decide whether she wanted to write a novel or a narrative poem. But that's what I liked! I liked that it felt lyrical like poetry yes, and it was very poetical it's all very very dreamy dreamy yeah i think that the okay now i disagree with the sentiment narrative poem i think is a good way to kind of describe the type of story that we're talking about because this is an epic what i mean by epic is i mean those older po ancient poetry like homer you know homer's like odyssey or Virgil's Aenid. It reminds me of poems like that. Yes. It's almost like a mythical type of story, mm-hmm. and I think the yeah. writing style really complements that. Mm-hmm. I agree. The storyline, yeah, like, you know, the story itself is also very logical. It's not very real. If, exactly. It has a dreamlike quality, mm-hmm. and the writing, the writing style really matches that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've never seen such extensive, invasive use of internal rhythms... Oh, sorry. Internal rhymes in a prose work. They're literally every other sentence. Internal rhymes? Does she do that? I didn't notice. I hadn't noticed, but if I had noticed, I would say it only enhances it. Because mm. as I said before, that's that's what I like about the writing style. It's super lyrical, very mm. poetical. So, Or such a generous gratuitous, not to say pretentious distribution of line breaks, as if this were a piece of badly written wannabe poetry. Okay, I like the line breaks. Come on. Like, I, I do. Line breaks are really hard as a writer because I feel like sometimes, sometimes in my books, I'm like line breaking every other sentence and then sometimes I have like huge paragraphs and I'm like, this doesn't look good. You know, line breaks are hard to do. I like the line breaks in this book. Mm-hmm. I just do. Mm-hmm. I don't remember them, and that must be a good thing because, like, yeah, that's a good thing. I saw someone, it's probably on YouTube, 
you know, this was a YouTuber who said it. But if you notice the directing, then that's a bad thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, if you're like, wow, the directing in this movie is really bad, or, or even... <laughs> I would say even if you're like the directing in this movie's really good, then that's probably not a good thing because it's distracting you from the story. It should be in the background. Mm -hmm. And line breaks are like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Like if you're noticing the line breaks, <laughs> it's not a good thing. Okay. But narrative prose works are not poetry, which is why they aren't normally supposed to make such liberal and indiscriminate use of poetic devices especially phonetic ones, and for very good reasons. Poetry's reliance on sound, rhythm, and metaphoric charge necessarily draws attention to the textural nature of the piece, while prose narratives are normally dependent on referentiality. Okay, let's be honest. This reviewer is an academic or, an acad or like a student of some type, and they are going way too much. They're going... They're going very technical on a book that doesn't really deserve it. <laughs> that, that's, that's just the vibe I'm getting from this review. I feel like they're treating this as I would treat... Okay, I, I kind of... Okay, you have you ever, like, taken a class where, like, that's the point of the class, you're supposed to analyze, like, texts or things, or I, I guess, right, you, yes. yeah, and I feel like that's what they're doing to this book, and I'm just sitting here, like, I don't, I don't feel this book deserves that. They're, they're doing a long-winded technical analysis to say something they've already said, which is that they think that this book is trying, the writing style of this book is trying to be poetic, and they don't like that, and then they're going in and doing this very long-winded technical analysis to try to convince you of that, but here's the thing, I don't need convincing because I agree that it's poetical and I like that. I'm like this person. So I'm going to skip that part and see if, oh, okay. I will read the last line of the analysis though. Especially because more often than not, all that the novel's attempts at lyricality do is trigger a ruinous fall into bathos. Basically, they're saying the book is being melodramatic sorry if you made a deal with the devil that you would be forgotten by every person you met excuse me for being a little melodramatic <laughs> about it <laughs> or if i made a deal with the devil that i'd only live a year but everyone i meet would like me excuse me for being a little melodramatic about it i'm sorry <laughs> did that offend you but i okay i'm sorry i'm being i'm being a little mean but I agree the book is a little campy in that it's a little, it's a little melodramatic, but I like that. And I feel like people are unnecessarily mean to like large displays of emotion, particularly in art. And I kind of feel that has undertones of misogyny. Here's why I say that. People are always like, women are so emotional. Women are too emotional. Women are crazy because they're so emotional. And I'm just over here like... If you're repressing your emotions, that's probably a bad thing. Expressing your emotions is healthy and it's good. And I disagree that in art you can't, you know, be a little a little over the top in expressing your emotions because I like that. That's what I want sometimes. I want my art to express what I'm feeling. Right, and I just 
sometimes find it hard to read characters who are just sitting there suppressing their emotions. Exactly! That's, that's kind of why, okay, if you ever read literary fiction, literary fiction is basically an exercise in teasing out what particular emotion the character's supposed to be feeling when they're staring at their shoes, or (laughs) staring at the wall, (laughs) or saying that they like peas instead of carrots. And I get that's artistic or higher or realistic or whatever, but here's the thing, right? Like, let's be honest, our internal monologues are dramatic, you know? I feel like if you have an internal monologue and you're walking around with an internal monologue, your internal monologue gets a little dramatic sometimes, and you can put that into a book and that's realistic. Because books are where you can see internal monologues. Yes. It's why, okay, think about it in music, right? Pop music, for example. I love Taylor Swift, and why do I love Taylor Swift? She sings about her emotions. She pulls no punches. When she's singing all too well, I feel that, you know, like I feel every word. She's being dramatic and over the top, obviously. You tore up this masterpiece that was us, you know? Mm-hmm. But I feel that. I feel that. One song I really like by her that's less well known is You're Not Sorry. She's like, you're not sorry. I'm not picking up the phone. I'm not hearing you say you're, you're sorry again because you're not sorry. I'm like, yes! Yes, girl, I know that. I know that feeling. People, some people are just not sorry and they keep saying they're sorry and that tears you apart on the inside, right? Right. I feel that. And I just, I hate when people tear down emotion or expressions of emotion because it's, I feel like they're being dishonest to themselves as well. So for, for this person to dismiss the the emotional side of Addie LaRue, it's just bathos. I'm like, but that's what I, that's what I want. That's what I need. I don't care if it's bathos. I don't care if it's melodramatic, you know? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I got a little passionate there, but I really hate that trope where women are emotional. I'm emotional. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I'm not rational, you know? That doesn't mean I'm unbalanced. Well, sometimes I am, but not usually. <laughs> right? Like, I feel things. And we should just be accepting of these characters for being emotional. Yeah. Like, I would be emotional in those situations, too. And you, th- this reviewer will be, too. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, okay, let, okay. This reviewer has finally pulled up an example of what they do not like. Practical example. To give you some context, our heroine, Addie, would rather die than marry, but her parents nonetheless decide to marry her away. The year is 1714. Of course, she said no. Adeline is 3 and 20, already too old to wed. 3 and 20, a third of a life already buried. 3 and 20, and then gifted like a prized sow to a man she does not love or want or even know. She said no and learned how much the word was worth. Such a dramatic and, in theory, emotionally draining moment in the story, and Schwab decides to render it in the form of a nursery rhyme. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you could come up with some kind of tune and sing this. And there are passages like this galore scattered nearly in every page. How else would the reviewer want this scene rendered where she says no to getting married? I have the feeling that this reviewer would like one of those literary fiction scenes. (laughs) Where they're like sitting in their little drab house and someone stares at the floor and someone else is like making dinner and drops a spoon (laughs) and no one actually like says anything. (laughs) I'm sorry. I, I do, okay, 
I'm, I'm being a little mean unnecessarily to literary fiction because I do enjoy reading it sometimes but what I did not enjoy was like having to work out the meaning of every story it's it's just tiring sometimes <laughs> I I literally think at one point my professor was like yes these stories are like puzzles and I'm like I'm sorry when did reading fiction become work <laughs> Do, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry for assuming that people read for pleasure or fun or to feel something. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm going to skip the rest of this paragraph because it's just this person going on about how they don't like how it's explained that Addie doesn't want to get married. I'm sorry. I, do. I particularly like this line. She said no and learned how much the word was worth. It, it tickles my brain in the right way. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. This reviewer and I just don't agree. I like the writing style. <laughs> Anything else? Okay. Oh, here we go. The characterization, as I said before, is basically absent. You have Adeline. By authorial design, she is so purposefully not your stereotypical female that she inevitably becomes a walking stereotype. All right. All right. I disagree with this. I totally disagree with this. That's not the point of Addie's character. The point of Addie's character is a lot of women are like her. A lot of women don't want to be forced to marry or forced to conform to a life they don't want. The point is that Addie is one of the few people who doesn't want it so much that she does the drastic, you know? That's the point of her character is not that she's like not like the other girls and that she doesn't want to get married. Of course, most of the women in that era didn't want to get married off to some random guy. Like, you know what I mean? The point is that Addie doesn't want it to the point that she'll sacrifice everything not to have to go through with it. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it's not even the point of the story that she's the only one who does this because that's not probably not true, right? Other women probably also made deals with like Luke or whatever, right? Also, Addie is not a stereotype. Please, please don't say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what, what, what about her would strike you as particularly stereotypical? I don't see that. Okay. Rebellious, free-spirited, adventure-starved, want to see the world so bad. And of course, she adores books. Well, she also adores art. Plenty of real people adore both. Like, I love books and art. Does that make me a stereotype? Yes, you're a walking stereotype. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly rebellious, but I am adventure-starved, and I do want to see the world. Does that make me a stereotype? Yes. Like, you you love books and art and want to see the world? Are you just, like, a carbon copy of me? Yes. <laughs> there's more to all three of us. Like, there's more to you, there's more to me, there's more to Addie. Yes, there there is more to us. Like, we don't... The three of us would react to different situations differently. Like, yes. the same... And like, we would react to the same like, situation differently. Right. And it's, like, very clear that we are... The three of us are very different people. <laughs> right. Even... We'll talk about this later, but the way Addie spins her, you know, immortal life is not the same way I would spend it or the same way you would spend it, and that's... That's because we're different people. None of us are the same person, you know? Right. Also, okay, man, this person's like, she adores books. Like, it's a bad thing. But I'm sorry. There wasn't, like, TV or movies back then. What would you do for entertainment? And also, Addie doesn't know how to read to begin with, right? Yeah, she doesn't so, know. So, I think it's one of the, like, big things that she learns how to do, and it helps her from loneliness, because I feel like I read books a lot, for instance, to help with loneliness. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. She, she primarily loves art, but, like, that's taken away from her when she becomes cursed, which I feel is really, really sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor Addie. She can't, she can't do the thing that she loves. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
the love child of Belle and Ariel, I'd say. Like, that's a bad thing. Is there a Disney princess who loves art? Rapunzel. Rapunzel. So she's she's the love child of Belle and Ariel and Rapunzel. I feel she's a lot more Rapunzel than either Belle or Ariel, though. I agree. Yeah. So, anyways. But, again, not a bad thing. And it, it doesn't... Your interests don't make you a stereotype. <laughs> Henry, Adeline's co-protagonist, would have been interesting, I believe, if the question of his mental health had been explored somewhat more in depth. What? He spent a lot of chapters talking about Henry's mental health. Yes. It's literally the driving force of his character arc. Right. And we find out more about it as the book goes on. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we don't we don't know about it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's a slowly unfolding character arc. Mm-hmm. But it ba- it basically drives his entire life. Right. I'm not sure how much more in depth this person would like the author to go. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I feel like especially with mental health issues, sometimes like less is more. You know what right. I mean? I feel like it would have detracted if we had had long scenes of Henry alone in his bookstore, just sitting there with his head in his hands. <laughs> do, do you want Henry to cry a few times? You know, yes. yes. Long scenes of him like walking around New York, just like sobbing, <laughs> like sniffling. Oh. Sobbing is too emotional and melodramatic. Exactly. <laughs> He's like walking through New York City. He stops. He has a he's, sniffle in his nose. He looks up at the traffic lights. And he just like stares at them for like five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> oh my gosh. But also, Henry's not really a co-protagonist per se. This is Addie's story. I mean, he's an important character, it's true. But he's not really a co-protagonist. What do you think? I agree. Yeah. To me, he's just the biggest side character. I agree, I agree. This is definitely Hattie's story. Mm -hmm. Okay. Since it wasn't, since it wasn't, since his mental health wasn't explored in more depth, I feel allowed to joke about how emo it is that at 26 he bargained all the years he had yet to live except one, only to have people not be disappointed in him. I think the point was he wanted to die. The point was he wanted to die, but before he died, he wanted to see how his life would have been different if people had liked him, right? Right. His intention was always to die. That's why he bartered away all his years of life, as this person would say. That that was the point. Right. How can we, how can, how can people read the same book and come away with such different impressions? That's art, but uh, I'm just, I'm just flabbergasted that every time what seems obvious to me is never obvious to someone else but what seems obvious to them is also not obvious to me isn't that so interesting Mm. like i i walk away with such concrete ideas Mm. such concrete like understanding but it's so biased and this person like my my understanding is just as biased as this person it doesn't matter whether like one person liked the book and one person didn't what's interesting to me is how you get such different things different understandings getting different things is one thing different feelings or emotions or whatever but different understandings it makes you wonder like you know those reading comprehension tests we had to take (laughs) how futile those were you know what i mean like those in the end those made no difference whatsoever to my reading comprehension or probably to anyone else's because just look at goodreads and read the reviews and see how much of a failure all reading comprehension tests are yes with multiple choice literally all i did was eliminate the impossible choices 
Exactly. I I I never had to like actually comprehend anything to pass a reading comprehension test. Even on the SAT, I skimmed. And then I would look at the questions and be like, okay, this is probably, you know, in this part of the article and it and it almost always was. <laughs> SAT people, if you are listening, please redesign your reading comprehension test because they're not testing reading comprehension right now. <laughs> okay, let's see. Because the whole thing is told without an ounce of finesse, so it feels simply ludicrous rather than actually sad. I disagree with that too. You can feel Henry's sadness from the first time you meet him every time. Okay, so here's the thing, right? What's interesting to me about Henry's story is you don't know about his curse to begin with. The thing where people, you know, the people he meets will instantly like him. You don't you don't know about that. However, from the first time you know, you you meet him as a character. You have these little moments where he's like meeting someone for the first time and he like looks into their eyes and you can become milky or clouded or whatever and you instantly recognize that he's like a sad person and that's like somehow related to it, you know? Like you can instantly tell something is wrong. And I think that is pretty subtle, you know? Like at the beginning, it doesn't, they don't hate you. The author doesn't hit you in the face. Like Henry is depressed. That's not how the book is. Mm-hmm. The book is pretty subtle about it, mm-hmm. right? Right. I just wouldn't use this word ludicrous because I feel like one of the main things about the book is it's about ideas. It's not really about reality. Sure, these things aren't real. They don't exist. But the ideas are still there and they are still powerful. And the sadness is an idea. It's just like there. There's not like a reason Henry's depressed. He just is depressed. I feel that's very realistic though. Yes. More powerful like as an idea among like unreal events. Yes. Well, it's speculative fiction more than fantasy, I would say. All right, that makes sense. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I feel like it's it's an it's an interesting mixture of a coming of age story plus you know, like, speculation. Like, if there was a devil and he did deals with people, right, like, what would be the outcome? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because it's not really fantasy, per se. I I know that a lot of people would probably classify this as, like, urban fantasy or something, but I just don't really see the fantasy part of it, personally. Mm-hmm. As we were saying, it's, like, it's more like just a poetry story. Exactly. I, f- I would be comfortable classifying this as urban fantasy if Luke was, like, one of many gods, which he's implied to be, but if they came out in the story and they had a big impact on the story and they influenced like the city and stuff I then I would call it urban fantasy probably but as it stands the story is speculative it's speculative about people and what is humanity and like emotions and you know big ideas as you said ideas it's a story about ideas so yeah Henry is depressed Henry is sad I feel there is a lot of finesse used in unfolding those things to us but even if there weren't that's not really the point Okay, the last co-protagonist, Luke, I don't even know. I still feel like we don't know enough about him to make a statement of any kind. Okay, that's interesting. We'll, we'll get into that later on in the podcast. We, we, have, we have thoughts about Luke as well. Let's just put it that way. And I wouldn't say that we... I, think, I feel like we get both more information than we need about him and less information than we need about him is the way I would put it. As a force of nature, as a supernatural phenomenon, we get too much information about him. As an antagonist to Addie, we get less information than we need about him. Is that fair? 
Probably. Yes. And we can talk about that later. Yeah, we can talk about that later. I myself can't believe that I'm rating and reviewing this novel so harshly. Yeah, I can't believe it either, because it doesn't deserve it. (laughs) Believe me, I am just as incredulous and astonished as you are, if not as is likely a lot more. I was expecting the invisible life of Addie LaRue with trepidation, because I was so sure it would be a four or even a five-star review for me. Why would that be a cause for trepidation? If you go to a book expecting it to be good, why would there be trepidation? Is it because this person just loves writing bad reviews? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That's the only that's the only way I can parse that. But it's a thing, right? Some people only write reviews to, like, be mean, essentially. Which is why I don't want this podcast to become that. I don't, I don't, I don't want that to be my thing, you know? Like, I want to talk about books I enjoy because I love reading, you know? Obviously, sometimes I will make fun of things and I'm expecting to have fun with that. However, however, you know, I just, I don't want, I don't want to be that person. (laughs) Okay. Indeed, I feel like the premise was excellent. Finally, something we agree on. Full of potential and conceptually rich. It was the execution that was clearly lacking as I see it. Wow. Okay. That was... An interesting, interesting negative review. We agree, disagreed with mostly all of it, but I feel it was instructive to kind of mm-hmm. see what people hated about this book. Okay, do you want to know? Okay, let's see the top rated positive review. Yes. The positive review starts with a picture of the physical book, which I feel is good because, as I mentioned before, I love I love the package that this book comes in. The physical, you know, package. Okay. Ah, this was a person who received an advanced review copy, so this person would have written this review without knowing what kind of reception this book was going to get, which I feel is going to be a more honest review just because I feel like if you already know, if you go in knowing how people feel about a book, that's definitely going to bias you know, your review. That's why I did not pull up the Goodreads reviews until we were actually into recording the podcast because I didn't, I didn't want my, you know, thoughts to be influenced by what other people thought. (laughs) And you, you can, you can go in, you like, if you like, like saying like, oh, whatever people think, it doesn't bother me, but like, it totally does. That's why I check like the Goodreads reviews before I like buy a book. (laughs) Okay, let's see. Stories come in so many forms, in charcoal and in song, in paintings, poems, films, and books. So that's a quote from Addie LaRue. I don't remember that quote. If I were to choose a quote to represent the book, that's not the one I would choose just because, okay, I I do like the writing style. I feel that quote was a little generic though. (laughs) This is a book about a girl, a boy, a devil, and the stories that get told and repeated and remembered. This is a tale of power dynamics and imbalances and what humans are willing to do to not feel trapped and alone. This is all about a young girl who lives her life for herself, who lives her life in spite of the odds, who lives her life in hopes someone will recall her from memory. Is that what Addie is hoping? Is that the source of Addie's hope, that she's hoping someone will remember her someday? I don't think so, because that feels like kind of an impossible thing for her to be hoping for. I think her source of hope is that she's trying to find meaning in her life despite not being able to be remembered. Yeah, and I think maybe the reason she's kind of fixating on being remembered is because that's what Luke doesn't allow her to be, so. I think she's just searching for meaning. Mm -hmm. 
and purpose and, Mm -hmm. you know, the things that people search for, but within the confines of her limitations. So yeah, we even disagree with the positive reviews, but that's, that's fine. As I said, we, we get different things out of Everything about Addie LaRue completely blew me away. I agree with that. This is the first book by V.E. Schwab that I've given five stars to. Oh no! See what I was saying? The person who gave this book a negative review said they loved all of her other books. (laughs) Now this person is giving Addie LaRue a five star review and says that they didn't completely love all of her other books. All right, we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to make that a goal for this podcast for 2023 to read some other V.E. Schwab books and see if we like them or don't like them. Anyone have any recommendations for V.E. Schwab books? that you want us to read, that you feel are representative, please send them in. There will be contact form, an email, something in the description. (laughs) Okay, and I'm not sure a day has passed since reading that I haven't thought about it. That's also true. I've thought about this book on and off since I read it. How about you? I have. Yeah. It's one of those books that definitely makes you, like, sit down and think of it after you finish. I will say that I think this book, and more importantly, the ending, could be a bit polarizing. This person was prescient! This person wrote this review before the book came out and knew it was going to be polarizing. Okay, I did not... I read the book. I didn't think it would be polarizing. I thought people would love it as much as I did. And then I was like, wait, people don't? But I'm bad at knowing what other people will think of things. But this story, this main character, and the way everything was structured just really worked perfectly for me and my reading tastes. I agree. How do I even begin to describe this book to you? There are truly so many layers woven together to make this story. All right. I don't really need... Okay, we we know about the characters already, so let's skip the characters character description stuff. I'm just curious what this person thinks. And then they have a recap of the entire, like, book, um, the entire, like, plot of the book, and I'm like, okay, why do people feel compelled to do that in reviews? They have descriptions of the character and the plot and things. I can get that from the blurb, and if I can't get that from the blurb, I probably don't want to know it before I go into the book. I think it's a holdover from, like, book reports, you know, writing book reports when you're a kid. Because that's how book reports work when you're a kid. Like, when you're in kindergarten and you write a book report, you're basically just recapping whatever happened. You don't really add your own thoughts unless it's like, I like this book! I feel like that's kind of setting you up for failure, though, as as an adult or just as you get older and you're writing other essays in school. I, if hopefully I will never have to teach kindergarten. But if I ever did teach kindergarten, my kids would not write these kinds of book reports, you know? Mm-hmm. They, it would it would be not like full-blown analyses, because these are five-year-olds, but at least rudimentary analyses, or at least like analyzing story structure or something more interesting than whatever this is that's bleeding over into like book reviews written by adults. Okay, let's talk about some of the rep representation in Addie LaRue because there are lots of queer characters and characters who read queer. Yes, there are. We were talking about maybe having a bit of discussion about this ourselves later on, the representation in Addie LaRue. Are we still on for that? Sure. Okay, then there will be a discussion of the representation in Addie LaRue if we remember to get around to it later. So this is this is just talking about representation and the book has some very serious depression representation. Yes, it does. It does have depression representation. Although that feels like a weird thing to say because I feel like characters have been depressed in fiction for a long time. (laughs) And I think maybe the person is trying to say that, you know, like he's 
explicitly depressed, but they never really use the word depressed in the book, do they? No. I wouldn't say the depression representation is any better or worse than, like, I, I think the this book doesn't really use any of those words. Right. Where it doesn't come out. Yeah. Where depressed doesn't come out. It's just exactly. a thing. It's just a thing. I like that kind of representation, yes. but I don't think it makes this book any better or worse than, like, in terms of the depression representation than, like, classic literature in which there are definitely depressed people. Yes. <laughs> Because there are a lot of depressed authors. Depression representation has never been an issue in literature. Never. <laughs> Let's be honest here. Being unsure what you want in life, especially in your 20s, feeling like something is wrong with you, feeling like you'll never be enough, feeling like you'll never be whole, feeling like you are just disappointing everyone around you, feeling like no one will ever take the time to see you, the real you, and choose to love you unconditionally anyways. It's a lot. V.D. Schwab really didn't hold back while writing Henry and his mental health. I don't want to make this too personal, but it means a lot to me, and I know Henry's journey is going to mean a lot to so many people people and impact a lot of lives. That's true. I I like the character of Henry. I like him a little less for just for the fact that I relate to him too much. He's like one of those characters I'm like I I know how you're feeling buddy and it's 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 rough out there. It's rough. <laughs> you know that like yes. that feeling where you're like ah oh, i relate to this character too much and i really wish i didn't plus a key component of this story is the god who addy makes a deal with addy and luke's 300 year bargain is so very messy and has so very many different elements but the key element is the unhealthy power dynamic over the course of time we get to see their relationship change and morph and grow and we get to see addy desperately trying to gain some of the power for herself but it is a very unhealthy cycle of abuse and this story is told in a way where the reader gets to see these power imbalances come more and more into play and Luke and Addie set the stage of their games more and more. I'll be the first to say I always wanted more of Luke and I loved every chapter he was in and I constantly wanted to know more about him but I will also say that I personally feel like V.E. Schwab was very deliberate with his character and was making him charming and intriguing and a character to be romanticized because abusers can have all of those characteristics and still be abusers. Yes, there is definitely an abusive relationship portrayed here with Addie and Luke. Yeah, I agree. It's kind of interesting because she's kind of running from this kind of terrible relationship with, like, you know, this guy that she doesn't even know. And then she just gets caught up with Luke. I would say it's even more fundamental than that. The thing that she's running from in the beginning of the book is the patriarchal power structure in which she lives, right? Right. But Luke is kind of his own power structure. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. Like, he's less of a person or being than an entity in and of himself. And once you make a deal with him, you are part of his... Let's call it a society. It's a subculture that he's created. And so she runs from like patriarchal France in the 1700s straight to <laughs> this demonic power structure that Luke is. And, and right, here's the thing, right? I feel it is telling that Addie can get more of what she wants out of Luke than she can out of a society created by humans. Right? right? Which is just showing how inhuman, you know, people can be to each other. Mm -hmm. But we'll we'll definitely discuss more about Addie and Luke and whatever is going on with them later on. Later right. on. But we can 
get to see Luke and Henry and Addie and watch their intertangled stories unwind. The rest of the book is, uh, the rest of the review is just the person going on about how much they enjoyed the book and we agree. I don't think there's anything more interesting in the review. So let's get back to our discussion. But that was, that was interesting, right? To see like a glimpse of, you know, the things that people liked and didn't like about this book. All right. So let's 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 get into the discussion our deep dive i really like that phrase just because i like when people go into depth and things but i feel it's kind of an overused phrase but it's fine deep dive time <laughs> we're starting with the positives the things that we really liked about this book uh i'll go first i really like the strong sense of place that this book had i feel like every setting in the book whether it was like the village in france or new york city or whatever the setting was just really firmly established and i feel that really tied into the fact that even though addy can't form connections with people or meaningful connections at least she can form connections with the places she visits and i i feel like in a way the places almost act as characters kind of because they're dynamic they change you know and how she interacts with this places changes also i also really liked the character of addy i think it would have been really easy and definitely if i had been writing this book i would have made her kind of a downer character <laughs> like you know depressed you know just really not not like the positive hopeful character that she is in the book and i think it's a i think it's a really nice thing that she manages to stay so hopeful mm, i don't know if i would call addy positive but definitely hopeful i feel like she is pretty positive i mean it's pretty much implied that she does get depressed sometimes mm -hmm. but we don't really see that and overall i feel she's pretty positive Yes, but I mean, like, her view of the world isn't exactly the most positive one, I feel, because she's always struggling with Luke and... Oh, well, that that's that's true. That's true. But she's, she's like, the kind of person who takes, like, joy in, like, the small things. You know, like, she really loves, like, the french fries she's eating or, like, the places she's visiting or things like that. And I think it's really nice that she's able to, like, enjoy those small things even after, like, 300 years of living or whatever. <laughs> I think she really does put a lot of value in those things and like for instance i think that's what she thinks will show luke the most when i don't want to spoil too much but oh it's fine to spoil this is like a book club style podcast. yeah that's true so when for instance when luke wait when she's expecting luke to come visit her she like puts on this like grand show of being all well to do and instead of like emotionally preparing herself she like prepares all this physical stuff that that makes sense and you know she's she's kind of you know inspirational in the way that she's able to take what's like kind of a downer situation and turn it into a hopeful one and then her hopefulness like actually pays off which is i, I think she's just how would you say it pays off because she's like able to meet henry and, oh that's true yeah but like it's not exactly paying off there because it's revealed that Luke was the one who put Henry in her way but I think that I agree that it does pay off in the sense that she becomes extremely happy yes it's like she's able to feel happy I think that Henry is not really the gut punch that Luke kind of expects him to be like okay I feel like Luke expects Addie to be like really happy when she meets Henry because she thinks it's like an accident and then I feel like he's expecting her to be just like devastated when Henry's like taken away from her and I think obviously she is devastated but I don't think it's in the same way that he's expecting it to be I, you, do you know what I'm trying to say I, I understand 
Yeah. I, I think overall, like, meeting Henry is a positive experience for her rather than, like, the betrayal that Luke is expecting it to be. That makes sense. I also really liked that Addie was able to remain, you know, human. Like, Luke is like, oh, you're not human anymore. You know, you're like me. And I, okay, one, that's kind of a cliche villain thing, you know? <laughs> like, we're so much alike, you and I. You know what I mean? Yes. But also, I think he's just wrong. Like, Addie, Addie is very much human in the best sense of what I think it means to be human. Like, she's kind, she's compassionate, she's hopeful, she's empathetic. And I'm not trying to, like, start... A philosophical discussion here of like what does it mean to be human and I know that a lot of people would argue well she's not like really afraid of dying and that's like a big part of what makes us human and she's also not like she doesn't feel anything when she steals because she's so used to it right I mean I yeah but I think on the whole she embodies like the best parts of what it means to be human like she's not okay she could use her powers in any kind of negative way that she wanted to essentially yes. you know like if she were a she if she she were in any way like a mean person she could turn into an inhuman monster you know what i'm trying to say but she doesn't she she remains very human and like i think that it's very human like how much she wants companionship Oh, yes. Yeah, she never stops searching for, like, human connection. And I honestly think after 300 years, I would definitely have given up. It's just so emotionally difficult every time they forget her, and I feel that the book really portrays that well. Yeah, exactly. And she she never she never gives up. She just yes. keeps on trying. And I really like how it pays off with Henry. Yes. I feel like, like, with Henry, he's trying to, like, Luke's trying to take advantage of the fact that she's keeps on trying, but but she doesn't let that happen. So I really loved all the things that you mentioned, but I think personally I really like agree with one of those reviewers who said that Henry's character was something big. The Henry struggles really do resonate with me. Yeah, Henry is definitely, in, in a way, he's kind of a foil to Addie. You know what I mean? He's kind of, I guess, kind of what you would expect Addie to be. <laughs> you know? But he is, he just is that way, and I think it kind of shows how much of a struggle it is to be human. Right, and like, Addie is so strong, as you say, whereas Henry is much weaker, and, and I really feel that contrast. It's nice to see emotionally vulnerable male characters. I feel like you see that a lot more with women write, who write books. They write, they tend to write the more emotionally vulnerable male characters. That makes sense. Okay, let's move on to favorite parts, chapters, arcs in the book. So my favorite part was just the beginning of like Addie and Henry's relationship. That moment where Henry is able to remember her and she's just like so happy and like so hopeful. Like that's just so sweet. That was that was such a cute moment. You know, she she's been so lonely she finally finally gets this moment of human connection and it's also this really bittersweet moment because even if henry hadn't been cursed you know to live only a year like his his lifetime is limited he's not immortal right so even in that moment like she knows it's a bittersweet moment you know but that just like i don't know it just makes it even more special so yeah i honestly like what motivated me to keep reading at first was i just wanted her to get back to like the parts with henry <laughs> i just i just wanted more of that that makes sense. you know relationship it was just it's just really sweet what about you favorite parts? I'm, I'm actually glad that they had all that stuff interspersed because it lengthened the time that we can spend exactly yeah yeah because she doesn't really get that long with henry it's I know. not really that long 
So for me, I think, as I mentioned, I felt that, like, the moments where people were forgetting Addie were very compelling. Yes. And, like, even though it happens over and over and over in the book and you think, oh, it gets very tiring, I just never got it tired doesn't, of it. It doesn't, particularly because each person who forgets her is compelling in their own way. Right. And, like, it's just a very human moment. Okay. All right. This is, this is, this is going to be a juicy topic. Juicy topics. Okay. What would a discussion of a young adult or this is more of a young adult-esque or like young adult adjacent book, but what would a discussion of a young adult book be without shipping? Let's get shipping culture involved. Okay. Now, do, do you know what shipping is? No. Okay. Oh, I know what shipping is. It's where you pair characters up in relationships. Like, especially, like, in fan fiction. Okay. Fan fiction! Okay, without, without looking it up, I already know what the most popular ship is. It's, it's gonna be Addie and Luke. Like, I just, I just know it, you know, without even looking it up. That's just the way, like, shipping culture is. People love villains. (laughs) And I, I think because people find villains to be compelling or interesting in some way. Like, personally, I don't really get that because... Heathcliff has come! Yes, Heathcliff. Um, I don't get it. I I know way too many toxic people in real life to find fictional villains compelling. But they're so handsome, and they're so dashing, and they're so romantic! But poor Addie. How could Addie, like, be shipped with Luke? Just, how could you do that, Daddy? I don't, I don't really get it either. Okay, as I said, I don't, I don't ship, like, protagonists and villains. Like, I just, I don't, I don't really like it. But, 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 here's the thing, right? I imagine the majority of people who ship, like, Addie and Luke, for example, are gonna write fanfics where, like, Luke becomes a better person. Because of Addie. Yes, exactly. My least favorite trope in all of fiction. No, and any, any women out there listening, you cannot fix him. You you just can't. That's not Not how that works. (laughs) And, And if you accept that that's just a toxic trope that you like, that's fine, right? But the problem becomes when you apply that kind of thinking to real life. And it's not, it just doesn't apply. I, I just think that, you know, a lot of, like, fan fiction readers are young people, and I just, I don't, I, it sits, it doesn't sit right with me that they're so drawn to this trope, because it honestly just makes me kind of afraid for them, you know? But it's more dramatic. Villains have this kind of freedom that we don't have. We're living in society and, like, following the rules. We just... But the thing is, the are rules to these people the who, like rules? have no rules, no bounds. The rules are there for a reason. Like that's that's the thing, though. Yes, but I'm not really exactly clear what Addie's conception of freedom is. But I think in the standard conception of freedom is freedom to be a villain. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, now enough of villains. Okay. So my my ship my ship is Addie and Remy. Okay. Why not Addie and Henry? I think it's just because okay it would be okay it would be Addie and Henry because they are very sweet. That's that's what the book gives us. Addie plus Henry. The canon ship. Yes. Yes. Okay, I I do I do I do like Henry. However, as I said before, I think I mentioned it. Henry is just too much of a character that I identify with to want him for Addie. Oh, Addie's too <laughs> strong. Addie's no, too cool. Not Addie's that, too anything for Henry. Poor Henry. Poor Henry should be relegated to like, No, no, that's not 
what I'm saying. Okay, I love Henry. I'm just saying, if I were writing Addie and Henry fan fiction, I feel it would get very heavy very quickly because he has real issues you know mm. and i just I, I don't think that would be fun mm. it's not a fun ship there we go it's a compelling ship and i like that canonically they end up together but <laughs> i just i just yeah henry henry is just one of those characters who hurts because he's so he's so much like me <laughs> you, you know okay so addy and remy okay such a cute couple okay so so remy's so. cute Yes, yes. Okay, this is how he is described in the book. Remy Laurent. Laurent? I, d- I don't know how to say his name. Laurent? Laurent. <laughs> it's French. You probably don't pronounce anything. <laughs> yes. Okay. Remy is laughter bottled into skin. It spills out of him at every turn. Like, how can you How can you not like someone who's described like that? He's just so sweet. And I that, that moment where he doesn't remember her, it just it broke me. Aww. No, this he's just so wholesome. Okay, your favorite ship. Who do you ship? Okay, in the context of the book, I think so. I think the person that will make Addie the happiest is Matteo. Like one hundred percent, the painter the Italian Mateo. artist. Yes. Well, are I'm, you are you not showing your Italian bias here? Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> but just think about it. He just doesn't care that he doesn't remember her, and I yes. think that's just so like that. Like that would be the person Addie could live with. Yes, yes. That that did kind of confuse me. Like. He's the only person in her entire life who never reacted negatively to, like, finding her there. And then and then she just, like, leaves. And I don't... Yeah. I mean, I get it. But also, I'm like... Stay! stay. <laughs> he wouldn't have minded. Yeah. Okay. Outside the bounds of canon... Come on, still Mateo. He's so nice! Okay. (laughs) Alright, let's do favorite characters slash side characters. I'm I'm very basic in that if I love a book, I generally love the protagonist. I if I don't like the protagonist, I probably just don't like the book, you know? The the same holds for like movies or TV shows or any kind of media really. If I don't like the protagonist, there's very little chance I'm sticking around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just how it is. I don't I don't necessarily have to like the protagonist or anything. Like they don't have to be likable. Wait, I thought you just said you had to like the protagonist. No, no, I mean like they don't have to be a good person. Oh, right. yeah. I I don't mean likable. I mean, I meant likable <laughs> in two different senses. But what I'm trying to say is I just have to find them an interesting or compelling protagonist. They can't be annoying. If your protagonist starts being annoying, I'm dropping whatever media it is faster than you can blink. Because I just... Annoying people are annoying. And they get under my skin and I cannot stand them. And it's kind of weird. Like, what makes a protagonist annoying, right? Yes. I, I can't quite figure it out. But something about certain protagonists makes them so annoying. I just can't. I can't deal with them. Okay, anyway. But I, I, I love Addie. Addie's a sweet protagonist. She's a sweet person. I love her. Oh, I also love Remy. I also love the cats from the book. Book, book book yes he's adorable and and the italian painter dude you mentioned love him too all right so what about you favorite character slash side characters definitely just mateo and book for me that's it (laughs) (laughs) what what the thing is everybody else is just way too influenced by luke for me like like everybody just is like pushed around by luke way too much 
Like, you know? Whereas, like, Mateo is not pushed around by Luke. He just doesn't care that he doesn't remember Addy. And so, like, sure, Luke has an influence over him, but, like, it's not actually an influence because he doesn't care. That makes sense. And, like, the same for Book. Book never... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hmm. Okay. All right. Let's get a little bit critical. No. No. No negativity. We promise. I did did not say negative. I just said critical. Oh. Not the same thing. Okay. Critical. Now, I think that the biggest thing we're going to be discussing when it comes to criticism, it's got to be the curse. Like, you knew it was going to be the curse, right? Like, okay. It is so hard to write books these days with speculative elements because everybody is looking for plot holes. And I don't necessarily want to do the plot holes thing. However, let's just talk about the curse. Curse, okay? Oh, so how believable would it be in our world? So, well, mostly like any 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 issues, you know, like oh, what okay. what what issues do you see? Okay, like I like personally, like if I just think about it in the context of my own life, I think the biggest issue I have is time. So, what happens to like the time that you spent with like Addy, like? For instance, Addie's parents, like, spent all these years with her. Like, so, the book never clarifies. Like, Addie asks, like, oh, have they forgotten the entire party, for instance, after the party because she was there. But, like, the book never tells us whether or not she actually forgot the party. I Okay, here's my, here's my theory. Okay, here's my theory. I think that what happens is, okay, in the context of her parents, they get moved to a new timeline where she never existed. Oh, I see. I'm gonna make this a time thing. (laughs) Every time you interact with Addie, you enter a new timeline. Okay, so it's not like they have, like, amnesia. (laughs) Yeah. They have a different timeline. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, it's just a different timeline. That's all it is. Right. It's kind of like, um, ReZero or something. Like, have you watched the anime ReZero? No, but you've talked about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All these different timelines springing up. Exactly. Timelines can get messy. I bet if you wanted to make this book more complex or, like, sci-fi-y, you could play with that aspect. Also, you mentioned bathrooms. Oh, bathrooms, right. It's just not believable in the context of our world because nobody ever uses the bathroom. (laughs) Also, okay, also there is a moment when she's hanging out with Remy. They're in the cafe. He, like, looks away. In that moment, I had so much anxiety. I was like, is he gonna look back and just, like, not remember? (laughs) But here's the thing, right? Like, what is... Because I I fully believe... I I think it's, like... I was thinking it was, like, physical proximity. Like, you have this aura around you, and, like... (laughs) It could be, like, an awareness thing. mm -hmm. I was thinking it was a time-lapse thing. Like, there's a grace period of, like, five seconds or whatever. I think so, too. Does that make sense? Yeah. As far as the bathroom thing goes, it's definitely... Like, with lovers! Like, maybe she follows them too much. (laughs) Hello, I just met you. May I follow you to the bathroom? Okay. Okay. Because it's clearly established in canon. There is a scene where she goes with Henry to, like, a party. Someone, like, the dinner party. Mm -hmm. Someone at the dinner party goes to the bathroom, comes back, doesn't remember her. So it's clearly established in canon. If you go to the bathroom, that's too much time. You just won't remember her after that. Mm -hmm. Like, you can just round the corner and you won't remember her. Okay, that's what I'm saying, though. Like, what if you blink? Then you remember her. So, it's like physical proximity. No, it can't be physical proximity because if you fall asleep, you forget her. Definitely time lapse. 
It has to be a time lapse. But but it's never clearly established so what when that in, period when in of time the time is. lapse does like the timeline switch happen? <laughs> <laughs> the moment you forget Addy is when you get shifted to a new timeline. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I mean that's the only thing that makes sense. Alright. So like in this new timeline, like you go places with Addy, right? For instance. Like through, how do you explain to yourself like how I ended up here? Well, I mean, in the new timeline, basically well basically in the new timeline you did like you do whatever you would have done if you hadn't met Addy. Like, but you still end up in the same place? Yeah. I mean Addie doesn't really like take people places. I mean, she does take people places, but they almost always end up just back at the person's apartment or whatever. Alright. Okay. I'll buy it. Now, how does the curse work around Henry? Okay. Now here's the thing. I get why he remembers her. Like that part fits in neatly with his curse, right? She wants him to remember her, so he does remember her. Fine, fine. It's not that her curse is invalid. Like, it's not that their curses cancel, they just fit. But, right? Here's the thing. She tells him her name. Even though she's not supposed to be able to say her name. Yes. Their curses do not cancel, they fit. That moment where he tells her her name, where she tells him him her name just throws that out the window (laughs) because here's the thing she can say her name but she still can't write her name what i i think it it is weird but like my my perception when i read that was like Addie doesn't actually like in real life say her name what so henry is like what she wants him to be right so she wants him to hear her name so he hears it even though she doesn't like technically say it i do not buy that what (laughs) now he's reading her mind yes no that's how does that make sense but like she's able to like tell him her name she's able to tell him her story she's like basically able to tell him everything like how does this work if he isn't able to like read her mind or something i don't think there was ever an injunction okay i don't think it's part of her curse that she can't tell people her story well, why he, but, like, she just can't reveal her identity, right? Why would she have never told anybody her story before? Well, what would be the point? They would forget. Oh, wait! No, you're totally right! Actually, she does try to tell people her story, and they can't hear her. Like, she tries to tell Remy her story, for example, and he, he just can't hear her. Wait, you're right, but Henry can. What? Okay, this just gets weirder by the minute. I... <laughs> I... <laughs> I, okay, I don't get, I officially don't understand how this curse works around Henry. Because the curses are not supposed to cancel. Yeah, so I think that they aren't canceling. I think he's just, like, reading her mind. They're so in sync, he reads her mind. Yeah, because that's what she wants him to be. Someone who reads her mind. (laughs) Okay, and I thought my timeline thing was, like, stretching. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone has any better theories than he reads her mind, please let us know. Okay, alright. So, Addie has a curse. She gets to live forever, but she gets forgotten by everyone. Henry has a curse. Henry is liked by everyone, but no one gets to see him for who he really is, only who they want him to be. And also, he only gets to live a year. Now, would you take Addie's deal? Would you take Henry's deal? Why or why not? I would jump at either opportunity. Like, just, I think the opportunity to have 
a not normal life. Just think about it. You could either marry this, like, random dude who's, like, a widower, he has kids, like, you have this insanely unhappy life, or you could take a chance and you could go see the world and all you have to do is give up your soul if you don't want it anymore. Why not? I mean, sure, people are going to forget you, but so what? You don't want people to remember you if all they're going to do is, like, make you marry this random widower. Okay, what about Henry Steele? Okay, Henry Steele, yes, because Henry is, like, extremely unhappy. His life isn't going anywhere. Why not take a chance and see what will happen? Okay, actually, what I meant by the question was, would you, as a person, in living your own life... Living my life? Yes. Oh, would I take... Okay, in my life, I would take Henry's deal, but not Addie's deal. You only want to live a year? No, it's not that. But, like, I I just feel sad if, like, the people I knew forgot me because, like, the people I know aren't trying to, like, make me go marry this widower. Well, you don't have to take either deal. Oh, but I would take Henry's deal because, like, you know, it'd be nice to get all this approval. But nobody can see you for who you are. But nobody sees you you for who you are anyway. Everybody's always, like, painting you over to who they want you to be, expect you to be. Like, the world is crowded with people who already don't see you as you are. They're just people who don't like you. And you get rid of those people. Everybody would like you. Like, you could be, like, amazing for the entire year. Like, you could just have, like, the most amazing life ever. Henry is, like, wasting his opportunity. You could do anything you want and everybody would still love you. What do you want to do that's so nefarious? <laughs> I don't know. But, like, it would be amazing to have this freedom anyway. Because, like, Addie, nobody likes her. Like, long term, there's just, like, nobody likes her. But Henry, you know. Well, nobody hates her either. That's true. They just like, what keeps her. me up at night is, like, this fear that, like, people just secretly hate me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I don't. I would not be bothered. But, like, okay, you know, like, you have, like, embarrassing memories or whatever. If I just knew that nobody remembered, like, except me, like, I would rest so easy. But the thing is, I would still feel embarrassed, like, even if nobody else remembered. Really? Right. I would be like, oh, that was so terrible. I couldn't convince myself, oh, that was a different timeline, so it doesn't really matter, because I would have still experienced it. Whereas if I were Henry, I'd be like, oh, nobody cared! Of course it was okay! You would take Addie's deal, but not Henry's. I... I don't know that I would take Addie's deal, because, I mean, I don't know, maybe... I mean, she gets to do basically whatever she wants, you know? Oh, yeah, so you want to do basically whatever you want, too. You're just like me. You should take Henry's deal. It's better. I don't want to live to the end of 2023, and that's it. Oh. I've got a whole lot more I want to do with my life. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, like I, I, I have been in dark places before, but I'm currently not in that place where I only want to live a year. <laughs> okay, so you'd rather, like, live until eternity... Well, that might also kind of suck. But but technically, you don't have to live until Like, eternity. you can just give in any time. Yeah, you can give in any time. So. I think Addie's deal is honestly an improvement on the classical idea of immortality. Like, the classical in my idea of immortality is that you get to live forever, but you end up developing these deep relationships with people who are always just going to die before you. Are you saying that Addie's relationships are not deep? Well, I... You know what I mean. Hmm. All right. That makes they sense. don't have the same depth as, like, knowing someone for 20 years. Hmm. That's true. Annie just never does that. 
Right, but, like, here's the thing, right? Like, the classical version of immortality sucks because you're always forming deep relationships with people who are always temporary. But Addie's always forming temporary relationships with people who are also temporary in her life. So, I think it's honestly kind of an improvement. Basically, nothing bad happens to Addie. She can't, like, die. She doesn't have to eat. She doesn't have to do anything. Like, if I were born in Addie's life, I'd take the deal every time. Like, I would not want to live the kind of life that she would have had to live otherwise. Yeah, I would have not even, like, I would not have been mad at Luke for what he did. Uh, I understand Addie's resentment, but I personally would have been like, oh, I'm so glad to be rid of all those people. (laughs) Okay, now assuming you take Addie's deal, how do you spend your time? Because you have all the time in the world. What do you do? I don't know. I guess I would, like, loiter around, like, places that it's okay to loiter. Like, maybe, like, university campuses or, like, (laughs) parks or... And do what? Like, people watch? Yeah, just, like... I feel like those kinds of places, it's, like, a lot easier to talk to random people. I never really understand how Addie's, like, just able to be, like, anywhere in a place and just talk to people. That would be really hard for me in this modern-day world. (laughs) That's true. I don't know about the past, the days where Addie, like grew up but right now I like I freak out walking up to strangers so I will find it a lot easier I think somewhere like a university campus like a really big university campus or parks okay yeah that's fair I would spend all my time reading Mm, libraries I would definitely spend a lot of time in the library because then I could like use a free computer yes I can find no you can't use a computer Addy can't use computers why she can't it's it's a thing in the book what she can't use phones and she can't use computers because then Luke's like well if you can use a phone or a computer you could use it to like write down your story oh you can't even browse (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I guess you could, like, ask Luke, like, negotiate. <laughs> Please like, let me browse. Yes. I want to find out about You would the think world. if his powers, you think his powers could, like, prevent her from, like, typing yeah. the wrong thing, you know? Yeah. Like, she tries to type A, D, D, and then, like, her finger slips on the I and she writes, like, a K, you know? Yeah. Something. Yeah. yeah, you could, like, negotiate something with Luke. Like, hey, I just want to browse the internet. <laughs> Okay, now, I would live in a library, like the little girl in the mysterious Benedict Society, Constance. Oh, right, that makes sense. Yes, I would have her life, basically. Mm -hmm. I would just spend all day in the libraries, and then at night when they were closing up, like, the librarian catches me, I just go around the corner. She forgets. (laughs) (laughs) And then, I bet the librarians have, like, a fridge where they store, like, their food. I could just, like, steal the food from the Oh, fridge. no. <laughs> okay, it's kind of mean, but, like, Addie just steals food and stuff anyway, so, like... But then, like, they put security cameras in, and there would always be this person with this blurry face. <laughs> and they think it was, like, a ghost or something. <laughs> <laughs> the ghost of the library. Exactly. And then I bet, I bet eventually they just have, like, a bag of food or, like, a lunchbox specifically for the ghost. They just label it, ghost girl. <laughs> Addie's like, yay! Wait, what if they try to poison the ghost? They wouldn't do that. There and Addie wouldn't have any problem with poison. That's true. They're, they're on the upsides. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, now, in the book, Addie kind of gets around the curse very creatively, by inspiring creative people, artists, authors, etc. 
What are other ways Addie could get around the curse? Let's brainstorm. Mm. Well, so she can't eat food. She can eat food. Yes, that's a weird thing in the book. She can't even leave footprints, but but she she can can eat. So she can leave marks in the food, right? Yeah, she can, like, take a bite out of an apple. And I'm pretty sure the apple doesn't reform. (laughs) Right. So, like, maybe she could, like, bite the fruit, like, bite the food, you know, the apples into, like, words, shapes, something. She could spell her name out in apples. (laughs) (laughs) That would be hilarious. And then she wants to, like, introduce herself to someone. (laughs) So she, like, buys a bag of apples and, like, bites her (laughs) name. (laughs) You want to know my name? Crunch, crunch. (laughs) And, like, with the same thing, like, her clothes wear out. Yes, her clothes do get ragged over time. Yeah, so, like, you know, can't she, like, do stuff with those rags? Like, tie them into... Like, create Like, maybe she could, shapes. like... Yeah, like, maybe she could, like, tear holes into her clothes. Like, say her name. Like, look it, look it. Like, she has, like, a t-shirt, and she just, like, tears her name also, into the Also, why shirt. can't Addie learn sign language? That's so smart! I did not think of that. Sign language! Yes! Right. It was just kind of this lingering question in my mind. Why doesn't Addie learn sign language? I bet the author didn't even think of that. <laughs> I, no, I'm serious. I would bet you, like... like they, is she not able to, like, form A-D-D-I-E with her fingers? <laughs> no, they, there, are, there, are no, there are not even any deaf people in the books. I bet the author didn't even think of it. Okay, that's that's very smart. Okay, my idea. Okay, I have I have several ideas actually. Okay, the first idea I have is I'm pretty sure Addie has DNA. Oh, because she's a person. Mm-hmm. People have DNA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like like that's clearly established. She is a person, like a living flesh and blood person. So she must have DNA. Now she can eat food, as we've already established. Mm-hmm. She is everywhere. Like she's she's basically a ghost. She can go anywhere, do anything. She's bound to come across crime scenes, you know? Right. She comes across a crime scene, like, in a house, Mm -hmm. you know? The house has food, for example. She, you know, she takes an apple, she bites into it, leaves it by the dead body. (laughs) (laughs) The police show up, they're like, this apple is evidence! They DNA test the apple, and they're like, this girl, this girl, or, you know, whatever. What if she doesn't leave a mark? They'll be like, the markless criminal who bites into things. (laughs) No, she she, she 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 strikes at every crime scene she can find. She leaves half-eaten food at all these crime scenes. The police are like, this 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 criminal accomplice we can never catch. They they're guaranteed not to forget her. They may not know her name, but they will never forget her. And she'll be in the police records. She'll be in textbooks. Are you kidding? <laughs> like she'll be the focus of every true crime podcast. <laughs> Every true crime community will be obsessed with her. Like, who is this person? <laughs> okay, next next idea. This is a little harder. Well, 
It's just more awkward. Okay, now, do you know how Henry writes down the story of her life, right? Right. So, I was thinking she can, when when she meets someone, like, you know, mm-hmm. she can be like, she can be like, write down that we met. You know, like, mm-hmm. write down the time, the date, the fact that I met you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, with her fake name, like, whatever it is. Like, a short summary of the conversation, right? They write it down in a notebook. They type it out on the notes app on their phone, like, whatever. The next time they meet, she reminds them, like, hey, we've met before. Pulls out their phone. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did, I did meet you. I have a note about it right here. And here's the thing, right? Like, brains make up memories all the time. Like, false memories are totally a thing. And she can capitalize off of that. Or even, like, even if she doesn't have them write it down, right? Like, next time she sees someone, she can be like, oh, hey, I know you, we met the other day, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. I've totally had people, like, wave at me or, like, talk to me, fully confident that I know who they are. I don't know who they are. <laughs> but <laughs> if they tell me that they know me, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's totally plausible. I could have met you in class or whatever, you know? Right. Like, I, I could convince myself. Addie needs to take advantage of that. People make up things all the time, like memories, you know? Mm-hmm. She could totally develop maybe not, like, super meaningful relationships because, you know, it'd be a little shallow, but they would convince themselves they remember her, and that's pretty much the same thing. Now, the flaw in my thinking is if they, like, write something down, like, about the meaning, then they shift to another timeline, then then they wouldn't have written anything down, because it would be like they never met her. Oh, right. Right? Right. So, assuming the timeline theory is true, then it wouldn't work. Assuming it's not true, then it does work. <laughs> Either way, I think it's an idea. Or, at the very least, she can do the false memory thing. Like, hey, we met the other day at such and such a place. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, that that sounds plausible. That sounds plausible. Alright, finally, best cities to live in if you are Addie. Addie lives in New York City. You know, she lives there pretty often, I think. I think it's a good choice. There's lots of people, lots of stuff going on. City's always changing, lots to do. It's also walkable. It's a very big city, but it's technically walkable. I would put my vote in for Tokyo. I think it's similarly like a big city, lots of stuff to do, lots of shopping, very walkable, awesome. Also, Boston. I Okay, this is me being biased. I, I just like Boston. Mm-hmm. But it's very walkable. It's got a lot of historical stuff, which I think is pretty cool. It's not as big as New York City, which kind of works in its favor because you can get around places easier and it's also got a bunch of outdoor stuff as mm-hmm. well so yeah i those are those are those are my cities that i think would be that good. makes sense i would personally choose somewhere warmer <laughs> oh that's totally true i didn't think about that aspect i mean sure Addie can survive but it's, it's just, not pleasant yeah it's just not very pleasant i would personally choose warmer places like where in the u.s i guess i would choose like southern california yeah southern florida maybe hawaii no, not Hawaii though. Hawaii's islands. If you needed to, if you wanted to like leave, it would be hard. That's true. Okay, now question: Is Addie okay? Uh, in twenty fourteen, Addie is in New York City. Is she now stuck in the United States? Okay, excluding possibilities of like Luke helping her, because if if Luke wanted, he could take her anywhere. But as long if Luke didn't interfere, if he didn't help her get anywhere, 
Would she be stuck in the United States because she doesn't have a passport? And I don't think stowaways are really a thing anymore. Maybe. I, I haven't really thought of that. I found thought, oh, Addie's so smart. She surely can get out of the country without anybody's help. It's actually probably difficult. Probably the way to get out would be to cross the border and then... It, it would be a lot harder, I think, though, in the in the past like maybe if you cross the border go to mexico then go to southern america like you can get on a boat somewhere where they aren't so strict about passports oh somebody with a private boat like maybe like find oh like a rich dude yeah and then they'd like forget you but that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing right perfect (laughs) yeah all right now let's okay Do you want to have the discussion about Luke first or the representation? Which one? Um, let's talk about representation. Okay. As far as representation goes, Addie and Henry are both bi slash pan, right? Right. They are the only characters in the book who are bi slash pan. Yeah, I I think that's actually a very interesting point. All of the other characters are either straight or, you know, gay. Let's put monosexual. That's fair, right? That's fair. Okay. As far as we know, obviously. Do you think that this is deliberate? It probably is. It feels like a choice. Mm. And that brings up kind of an interesting point because I, I feel it ties into the fact, symbolically, for the author anyway, that these are both very lonely people who are trying to connect in any way that they can. That makes sense. So the representation is tied into symbolism. Now, is that is that good? Do we do we like that kind of representation? Yeah, that the neediness makes us more accepting to like different. Yes, because here's the thing, right? There's this book that's been on my to TBR list, my to be read. Is it to be read or to be to be what? To be reading. I I don't know. To be read because be read. it's like to be announced. So yes, it's to be read. okay. So I'll, that's been on my TBR list forever. It's called the Vanishing Half. It sounds right up my alley. It's basically about these twins who are mixed race, and if they, one of them decides to pass as white, and the other decides not to. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that this has been on my TBR list and that I haven't actually read it yet is because I, it's, this all comes back to Goodreads. All, all roads <laughs> lead back to Goodreads. On the Goodreads reviews... People keep talking about the trans representation in this story, right? Because kind of similarly to how it's done in Addie, there is a trans man in the story. And the trans man's struggles are kind of symbolically linked to the idea of passing, you know, passing as white. So in what way are they linked? So, basically, the, for example... So, they're saying that passing as white is similar to being trans? Kind of. Okay. But, like, that's not quite the same thing, right? It's not the same thing, no. Because, like, you really are, like, a man if you're a trans man. Whereas, if you're passing as white, well... You're denying a part of yourself. Right. Because mixed race people are both things, and I think that a lot of people forget that. Or they just don't want to think that, you know? (laughs) Because I, I, I feel like, you know, mixed race people are kind of, you know, speaking from experience, they're often kind of, you know, outcast... You know what I mean? In that people don't want to, people don't want to really accept them. Right. Whereas equating that to being trans, it feels kind of like 
you're saying that you don't want to get found out, you know, that you weren't born a man. And that just doesn't, that doesn't feel right. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like you, it doesn't feel like you should equate those two things. Mm. Not equatable. Yeah, well, with the <laughs> acceptance thing, they're kind of similar, but, like, they're not equatable, really, in any other way. Yeah. I agree. Now, the thing is, I don't know how I feel about this kind of representation, you know? Where it's symbolically, like, linked to things. Like, honestly, I'm a little uncomfortable with the whole, like, like race passing, like passing as white, for example, that gets linked to a lot of things. And I'm uncomfortable with that personally, mm-hmm. you know, right. it just doesn't like when you're talking about like trauma or struggle or experiences, I don't really think that you should be using those as tools, you know, like storytelling tools or devices like that. This is, it feels kind of insensitive. And I kind of feel the same way about the sexuality in Addie LaRue. That makes sense. It, it feels a little bit like, you know, Addie and Henry's sexuality is what it is because of storytelling reasons rather than that just being what the characters are. Right. And it, it's, it's, it bothers me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean... I will say, like, it's nice to have representation. Like, yes, the representation is good. It's just what it would have been nice if, like, maybe, like, some of the other characters were also yes. of the same. Yes, it, it, it would feel less like Addie and Henry were singled out to mm. be, you know, bi slash pan just because they're both lonely. <laughs> like, that doesn't, that doesn't been, feel like, they're right. both cursed. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't feel it right. It just doesn't feel right. Exactly. Okay. All right, let, let's let's move on to villains. Villains. Luke. Okay. First of all, what is going on with Luke? Secondly, what is Addie's plan at the end of the book? Okay. First of all, let's start with Luke. Luke is the villain, right? We've we talked about this a little bit before, and I wanted to get in more into it there, but I didn't because I knew I had this coming up. People love villains. Okay. As a writer, I get it. Because villains, like you said before, villains have a lot of freedom. They have moral freedom. You can make them as evil or as redeemable as you want. You're not under the same constraints. Like, you can make your villain do literally anything, and it's it's okay. Like, you, you know? Like, people... They are be, free! Yes, people will allow the villain to save the cat you know and then they'll be like oh they have a good side but then they can like burn down a hospital and be like oh i guess they're back to their evil ways you know what i'm saying so they're 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 absolutely a blast here right and and the villains don't have to be like large scale like that like petty villains are also fun to write you know in my most recent book i had the brother the brother character is definitely a villain but you, you liked every time he was on page. You enjoyed having him around. He was hilarious. Exactly. Villains are often like that. Villains are often hilarious. They're they're super fun to write because of that. They can say outrageous things, you know? Because they don't they don't care. And that's that's pretty awesome as a writer. Now, I also know that villains have a lot of range in the roles that they can play in your story. They can play enemies, obviously, but they can also play rivals. They can play love interests. Love interests. Let's bookmark that. Okay. Luke is a villain with a lot of potential as a writer because he is literally the devil. Let's agree on that. He's the devil. He's the devil. Right? That is so much fun to write. A lot of potential. Now, 
story-wise, story-wise, what is up with Luke? Now, I don't get him as a character. He's kind of all over the place. Because, okay, here's the on one hand, he is a monster. He is a monster who makes deals with desperate people and kills them eternally. The concept of a soul means that, you you know, if you keep your soul, you have some chance that, like, another a- life. Afterlife or another other, life? So, something. Being reborn? Something. Oh. You get a chance. I wasn't at, really clear about that. It's yeah, you get a chance at something after death. Death is not permanent, basically, you know? And what is Luke going to do with these souls? He kills... Basically, him taking your soul means he kills you for eternity. Yes, but what's Luke get out of it? I think he just wants them. I think he just, like, keeps them. In the same way... Yeah, in the same way that he takes out his ring, you know? Mm. He he just wants it for the sake of having things. You know? I see. Oh, he's like... He's like in spirited away. There's that monster no face who just keeps eating and eating, yes. even though he's not hungry. Like that, right? He's <laughs> Luke is no face. <laughs> okay, now that is okay. So on one hand, he's a monster, a soul killing, greedy, possessive monster, and then on the other hand, he is Addie's enemies to lovers trope. Because he's lonely, she's lonely, he's the only being able to remember her until Henry. In those two halves of him, I cannot, for the life of me, reconcile because they feel like separate people. Like, it feels like the inhuman side of him is just inhuman, like he's some kind of monster. The human side of him is just a little too human. Like, the Luke who falls in love with Addie is the basic jerk love interest, like, the abusive but hot but very wrong boyfriend trope. <laughs> and then the Luke who makes deals with people is this terrifying eldritch monster. I don't, I can't, I can't see them as the same character. I just, I can't. I see what you're saying, but, like, I guess I just, like, personify characters way too much, like, when they're in books. I think, like, you know, most books make you do that, but, like, I think I just personify all of his aspects, and, like, he's just, like, this overly powerful human. So, to you, he's not really the devil. No, he's just, like, this overly powerful human. He's more like a superhero gone bad. Right! (laughs) Okay, (laughs) interesting. Interesting. That's how I kind of think about the devil, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do you know how in, like, especially in, like, Renaissance art, when they depict the devil, they make him, like, this really good-looking dude? Oh, alright. Like that? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, for some reason, the devil in in ancient art, he's just really hot. (laughs) I'm like, why? Why? Right. Like I thought the whole point was you didn't you didn't want to be the devil or like you didn't you didn't want to get involved with him. You're telling me he's a really hot guy? What? <laughs> okay, now I am a little confused by Addie how Addie feels about Luke. Does she love him? I kind of think she does like there's a lot of hints that she does love him or that she's actively trying not to love him which in these kinds of books is often equates to yeah, like falling in that love makes sense. but like also she doesn't i don't think okay she ignores his 
monsterness, like how much of a monster he is, because he's the only thing keeping her from being like absolutely like so lonely. But when it comes down to it, she breaks up with him because she can't, she can't ignore it, right? Right. And they're doing this back and forth, back and forth thing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. all throughout the book, they do this back and forth, back and forth thing. By the end of the book, they seem to be falling back into that pattern where Addie's trying very, very hard not to be in love with him. Yeah, it it seems like a classic unstable relationship. Exactly. Okay, I want to make it very clear. I do not consider Luke to be capable of love. His idea of love is possession. Like, that's all he understands, you know? He doesn't, he doesn't understand, he doesn't understand people. He doesn't understand that Addie's a person, you know? And that she has her own autonomy, her own personhood. Therefore, he's not capable of love. I just am not sure if she loves him, does she? I'm not sure, like, your evidence is pretty convincing, but I just feel like Addie doesn't really love anybody, because how could she love anybody, like, anyone if she doesn't love Henry? Like, how can you, like, love somebody when you can't love Henry? (laughs) That makes no sense to me. Oh, I did, okay, I did feel very bad for Henry. There's a point in the book where she's, like, do I love him? And it's, like, pretty far into their relationship. Like, she's like, is this enough? Is this love? She's convinced it's not love. Like, that becomes clear. Like, right. that it's just fake. And I felt so bad for Henry I in that did. moment. I'm like, of course you love him. You don't? <laughs> like, you don't love him? <laughs> Maybe her notions of love are just too messed up because like her only real relationship before henry is luke and like he's enough to like mess anyone's head up you know (laughs) no but i at that that review we're reading earlier it's very correct like this is a classic abusive dynamic that Mm. we're seeing with addy and luke which is why it makes me so sad to know how much fan fiction has definitely been written about these two (laughs) like you, you just know it you know it okay now, I need to talk about the ending. We we need to hash this out. The ending is driving me crazy. Okay. So in exchange for Henry's soul, Addie tells Luke that she'll be his for as long as he wants her by his side. The implication on the last page is that Luke can't tell what Addie's thinking or feeling, so she's planning to outwit him and make him not want her anymore. Am I reading this correctly? Is my is my reading comprehension okay? Yeah, that's exactly what I read too. All right. But what is actually happening to Addie? When I first read the part where she says goodbye to Henry, I thought she was basically committing suicide. <laughs> right? Like, I thought... Like, Luke is a void, and I thought she was, like, being swallowed up into it. Like, that's what I thought she meant by being by his side. But then at the end of the novel, she appears again, and I'm like, okay, she clearly did not commit suicide. You you know what I mean, Not, not literally commit suicide. But where did she go? Like, what does the deal mean? Like, what happened to her? Like, I I took it very literally. Like, you know, I think she's just, like, sticking to Luke, going wherever he goes. Because he he goes around the world. Like, he's not just the void. So, oh, where does she go in the daytime? It's always night somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) So they're just going wherever it's nighttime. Right. Interesting. But she's basically his prisoner. Right. But the condition is she sticks by his side, right? And so, like, not exactly, I mean, yeah, prisoner, but, like, you know, just sticking by his side. Okay. That's the promise. 
Okay, so I think this is supposed to be, okay, no, that makes sense. This is supposed to be a hopeful ending, like, oh, hey, Addie is going to outwit Luke at some indeterminate point in the future, but, but, okay, let's take a moment here. Let's be very honest with ourselves. This ending is not, not a hopeful one at all. Like, I have no confidence in what Addie is doing or planning to do, okay? This is the girl who knew from the beginning, like, she went in eyes open, right, knowing who Luke was, what he could do, and then she fell in love with him anyway, right? And then her deal means that she's going to be with him constantly. She doesn't have Henry anymore. She will never, probably, unless Luke wants to play more mind games, have anyone who remembers her again. What is she planning to do? I don't, I don't, I don't understand how Addie thinks that Luke isn't going to try to, like, weasel his way out of whatever, you know, she said, like, right? Like, I don't, I, I don't understand how she thinks that she's going to compete with the literal devil and come out on top. Like, what makes her so confident? She talks about it being this game. And so I think she really just doesn't care so much. Like, I think the point is that she's happy with Luke. But that's even less of a hopeful ending. In the end, she doesn't care about Henry, right? Like, if she's not in love with Henry. Like, she cares enough to, like, to, like, make this deal. But, like, in the end, I think she's also making this deal for herself. I think she wants to be with Luke. So she just ends up back with her abuser. That's the ending? <laughs> yeah, well, like, you know, she wanted, like, a lasting relationship. And she decided, oh, Luke's the only one who will give this to me. Wow. <laughs> All right, now, now I'm just sad, though. <laughs> but, like, she can't satisfy herself with that because, like, you know, Luke can't actually really love her. So she's like, oh, I'm actually, like, playing this game with Luke and, like, I'm going uh... to come out on top and it's going to all be fine and I'm going to make him so unhappy is how I read it. Wow, that's just heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, well, if Addie's okay with it, I'm fine. I'm not! <laughs> Why? How'd you read it? No, no, I I think you're totally correct. That's why I'm just sitting here, like, sad. <laughs> sorry for starting your new year this way. You, you don't seem very sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. It's 2 a.m. The darkness. Luke's all around us. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> Never pray to the gods who answer after dark. <laughs> Okay, you, you better not start any prayers right now. Yeah, no, it's happening. Okay. Right. But what if I get this, this one of these amazing deals? Like, no. living forever. No. <laughs> I'd rather not have to forget you, because then I'd have to record this podcast all over again by myself. Oh, right. That that would be, like, however many hours we've been at this down the no, drain. No, like, it would just be the same thing, like, except with a bunch of hazy like muffled noise like where i'm and then i'd have to edit all of that out and then like fill in the blanks where you're supposed to be talking right no thank you how could i have made these terrible noises (laughs) what happened to my voice (laughs) actually did did they ever test that in the book whether you can record addy's voice i don't think so you think it's like in the the movie the sixth sense where the ghosts are, like, mumbly and you have to turn the volume <laughs> up to hear them. Because <laughs> if you can hear literal ghosts on tape, I'm sure you can hear Addie because she's a person. Right. Yeah, they should have tried that. 
It's not established in canon, so we don't know. <laughs> but that would be that would be interesting. It would probably just be static. Static. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now let's. Okay, that that kind of wraps up our like book discussion. So I want to do a writing craft corner writing craft discussion today we're going to talk about timelines not in the sense that we were talking about before we were talking about like shifting timelines but like write, <laughs> writing timelines okay now so the timeline of Addie's story yes right. not the timeline of all the other people's stories no okay so right now i think it's fair to say that there are a lot of books being published where you jump around in time Probably not any of you you've read because you don't really read new releases. But there are a bunch of new releases right now where the same kind of thing they do in Addy, you know, happens. Where one second you're like in the 1700s, the next minute you're like in 2014. That kind of thing. You, the book is not in chronological order. Mm-hmm. I knew going into this book that it would happen since Addy has lived, you know, 300 years or whatever there's a lot of ground the author was probably going to want to cover more importantly though i've noticed that authors use this technique to raise story questions and that kind of creates suspense because then you can answer the story questions as you go through the book it's essentially like a more sophisticated way of handling like flashbacks for example, in Addie, the first thing we read is a prologue that takes place just before Addie makes her deal, right? She's running through the woods in a reading dress. She's panicking. We got no idea what's going on, right? Or, you know, very little idea of what's going on. Like, who's this girl? Why doesn't she want to get married? What's about to happen? We flash forward immediately to 2014. We get a glimpse of Addie's life after the curse, how she's forgotten by people, how she's stealing clothes, there's a ring she doesn't want, more story questions, right? How did this happen to her? Why does she need to steal the clothes? What's with the ring? And then we get the answers as we go through the book, but very slowly since we're constantly jumping back and forth in time, and that keeps you reading, that propels you forward, it provides momentum. Speaking of jumping back and forth in time, when you first read the book, what is something you ignored? What did you not Uh, notice? Oh no. Okay. (laughs) So, you're talking about how I didn't notice every chapter tells you what year it is. Yes. Right. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I just didn't notice the things at the top of the chapters where it says what year it is, where the scene's taking place. You know, I thought, like, oh, somewhere at the top there's, like, a chapter title. I don't (laughs) want to see a chapter title because, like, you know, I hate chapter titles sometimes because they give away what's going to happen. And Like, when you gave this book to me, you were like, oh, you don't want to know what's going to happen. You aren't allowed to read anything. Like, (laughs) I literally just didn't want you to read the blur. Anyhow, so I took you too literally. Yes. Anyhow, I I usually skip chapter titles anyway, so. What? That's sad. I love chapter titles, and I'm so sad they've gone out of fashion. But too often chapter titles spoil the whole chapter. With, like, serial episodes, I like having titles because I'll be like, oh, next week I'll get to find out about this. This amazing thing's going to happen. But, like, not with books. Like, when I want to read the next chapter, I just read the next chapter. Okay, question. But you could, like, guess the approximate years. Of course! It's so obvious from context where it's happening, what year it is, like... Did you think it was 2014? Did you think it was 2014? Did you think it was, like, 2012? I thought it was 2014. 
You just guessed 2014. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed 2014. Okay, no. I, may, I might not have guessed 2014, but I knew it was, like, now, present day. I thought it was probably, like, whenever the book was written. When was it written? 2020? I thought it would probably be, like, 2020, I guess. It was released this year, but, um... All right. Yeah. But it was it was written before that, obviously. Right. No, but I, I did... Okay, I love, I love this detail that you just ignored the chapter titles and were still able to figure out what was going on. Because it points out, like, the author is very effective at establishing time and place. I... I'm jealous. It's something I work on a lot, but it's hard to do. It's hard to do. Mm. As a reader, how do you feel about this kind of story structure where you're jumping back and forth in time? I, I thought I kept it interesting. Fast pace. I really like the pacing that that brings. The momentum. Yes. Yeah. Also, like, just, like, it makes you feel like you're going through stuff a lot more quickly because, yeah. like, you know, you're getting to the end a lot more quickly in the sense. See, okay, I am not really fond of it as a reader because I just I just like the straightforward chronological time structure. Yeah, but like I'm, when you're covering <clears throat> 300 years, do you really want that? Do you want to just go No, like- I I agree. I agree that this particular structure is the most practical for this kind of story. Right. I agree. Like, I mean, also, you know, it creates a lot of suspense, right? right? Also, you know, you can get to the, you know, juicy parts of the story early on to get people hooked, right? right. Like, if this if this book was written in chronological order, Henry wouldn't even appear until yeah. you were, like, most uh, of the way done. Right. I don't think I would have been so invested in Henry if he had just, like, come out near the very end. Now, question. Is the emotional impact of Henry remembering Addie lessened by having him appear relatively early on? Would it hit you harder emotionally if we followed Addie for 200 pages, not having anyone remember her, and then Henry finally showed up? Probably, yes. I think I would have been, like, more connected to Addie, but, like, I don't know if I wanted that. Like, I feel like the connection to Henry is just as important as the connection to Addie, and I would have lost that. Like, making the development of Addie parallel the development of Henry, like, makes you, like, more interested in both of their stories. As a writer, how do you create this type of book, right? Do you write the chapters in order, then, like, shuffle them around? Or do you just, like, create a timeline of events, shuffle the timeline around, then write the chapters? Yeah, I think it's more closer to, like, making a timeline of events. I think you try to, like, flesh out the events somewhat, and then, like, and then you cut it up and then write it with the shuffled timeline. My guess is for this particular book, I think the author made the timeline. Then, I think what the author did was, then after making the timeline, she came up with the themes for each part. Like, there's a theme. One theme is the romance between Addie and Luke. One theme is the you know, relationship between Henry and Addie. And then she reordered the timeline to fit each theme. Oh, that makes sense. That, yeah. That's actually a really clever way to do that. <laughs> watch watch the watch the author like somehow listen to this podcast. And she's like, I, I did none of those. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I was just guessing. <laughs> okay. I'll come back to this question when I inevitably end up writing a book in this structure and I'm probably gonna hate every step of it because it's just not my preferred method of either reading or writing but it's gonna happen you know I just I know it's gonna happen someday and I'll let you know how it goes I'll, I'll let you know how I did it okay 
So that wraps up our discussion of the invisible life of Addie LaRue. I just wanted to reiterate, we got a little critical there at the end, but we still love the book. We still love the book. If you're out there listening, Addie, then stay strong. Yes. Hopefully you've already read the book because we did a lot of spoilers. But if you've already read the book, reread it. It deserves it. It deserves a reread. This is one of those books that deserves a reread. My New Year's resolution. We've looked backwards. Now let's look forwards. Reading plans for 2023. I am going to continue to read new releases, keep up with all my favorite genres. I want to get back into sci-fi and read more fantasy in 2023. I believe V.E. Schwab actually has fantasy books so I'll see if I can find some of those. I did not read enough historical romance in 2022. It's one of my favorite genres even if all the historical romances I find are set in 19th century England. Like come on there's there's definitely more interesting time periods for romance than just that particular period for that particular country and I was going to blame Bridgerton but I should probably blame Jane Austen because like, she started that whole <laughs> trend. I also want to read more mysteries. I, I'm i just hooked. I, I just love mysteries. I am hoping that the current movie trends of, you know, like mysteries will like translate to book trends and we'll get more like locked room, golden era type mystery books because I just, I love them so much. What about you? Any big reading plans for 2023? More Italian books? Yeah, I, I never make reading plans because I can never follow them. So I'll just let books come as they will, I guess. But yes, I am going to read more Italian books, definitely. Okay. All right. And we'll we'll definitely be making more episodes in the 2023. Maybe maybe I'll read Elena Ferrante's books and we can do some episodes on that. Or or you know, we'll think of something fun to do. Maybe we'll come across, you know, a book like Addie LaRue or maybe we'll read a really bad book and rip it apart together. <laughs> <laughs> I know I want to say positive, but I I want to do at least one one episode this year where we just mercilessly tear a book apart. It it won't be fun to read, but it will be fun to rip it apart. Right. Is that fair? (laughs) Okay. All right. We are pretty much done here. And it is it is it was not 2 a.m. when we started recording. Let's let's be honest about this. But it is now 2 (laughs) a.m. All right. Happy 2023, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for our first ever episode. I'll see you. Unfortunately, you won't be here for the next episode, but I will be here. So I will see you all next week at 2 a.m. This has been the 2 a.m. Book Review Club and happy 2023. Happy 2023.